The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Time to make the chimmy fucking chongas. Inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host Lewis Paul as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, lights, camera, and a whole lot of action. Uh, we're talking Canon Films, starting life as a low-end distributor at Joe Sarno's Swedish-era softcore epics, the advent of Menachem Golem and Euron Globus's elevated Canon Films from, to the top tier of cult cinema, specifically in terms of action films. From early slasher films, Luigi Cozzi oddities, and breakdance films to a non-exclusive hold on the ninja film craze of the 80s, Canon took action heroes like Chuck Norris, Charlie Bronson, and even Michael Dudikoff and drove them to new heights, or lows depending on how you look at it, of explosive action cheese, garnering both po-faced and tongue-in-cheek accolades from generations of fans in the process. So join us tonight as we talk one of the most consistently crazed and entertaining film production companies in exploitation, the legendary Canon Films. I'm Doc Savage, and with me is my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, who probably has no idea what that intro was about, since I don't think he's seen Deadpool yet. <laughs> I have not seen Deadpool, but I, it's definitely on my list, and uh, I'm going to make uh, it's it's surprising everybody by raking in tons of money. Um, yep. And uh, so I think it's going to be around, as opposed to some things that really wanted to see that disappeared. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, um, like Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies? That was great, too. But no word, way too late, and uh, nobody showed. Oh, did you see that? Yes, you did. did. Like it. Yeah. Saw so it opening oh, weekend, yeah, but it was great. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, nobody was there, and there was no word of mouth, and it was just gone. So. Yeah, yeah, it was strange. Uh, that movie was in pre-production for a couple of years. Uh, That's the problem. Right. Yeah, and, cause, and then I think when they finally went into production... 
all interest kind of dropped. Exactly. That whole thing was like, you know, two or three years ago, the craze, and now it's long over with. You know, it did a good job. You know, it wasn't, uh, it didn't throw in all the scenes that I thought should have been there, but the leads were definitely likable and attractive, and they pulled off enough of it. So I was very happy with it, uh, especially for a Hollywood production. So. Yeah. I definitely got to get to Deadpool. Uh, I will. Deadpool is hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Almost as funny as what? Yes. As what? As funny as what? Almost as funny as one of our podcasts. <laughs> are our podcasts funny? <laughs> <laughs> They're erratic, occasionally shambling, sometimes disjointed, but no, never. <laughs> hey, They're entertaining. They're entertaining. <laughs> so, hopefully you've cracked out your own vino or whatever your beverage of choice is. And um, so, did you want to kick off? Or you want me to kick off? Oh, you're excited about this one. Right, go ahead. You. If you have an introduction, go for it. I'm not trying to step on you here. I just know you're like in a rush all the time, so <laughs> I don't want to keep you going for these no, epic no, shows. Uh, you you start and I'll interject when appropriate. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> uh, so basically, for those who don't know, Canon was actually around for at least uh, I'd say twelve or thirteen years before they got uh, known. Uh, they were kicking around since nineteen sixty seven, believe it or not. Uh, two folks uh, in their twenties actually had set it up, completely unrelated to uh, the people that everybody knows. Uh, somebody named Dennis Freeland and another named Chris Dewey. Uh, and they were doing the English uh, dubs, basically, of Joe Sarno's Swedish, uh, I, I don't want to say porn films, but essentially that's what they were, those those softcore jobs, uh, like the uh, the Inga films and, you know, all that movie, Little the Job kind of things that he was doing back well, then. Well, I, I think they were picking up other product, too, but yeah, those are the most well-known, yeah. Right. Uh, but by 1979, uh, Menachem Golan and Euron uh, Globus uh, Golan had actually already been kind of on the scene, not just in terms of production, but he directed and I think he wrote that ridiculous uh, The Apple, uh, which is a really – I think they were going on like the, the trail of like Xanadu and uh, Can't Stop the Music. It's in that vein uh, of these really tacky sort of roller disc, disco-ish, um, very late 70s space costumed uh, kind of a take on Adam and Eve. But it was but really bad. Sexy too, and sexy too. And you know what? I I, I don't want to. I know you're on a roll here. I I recently saw a trailer for this. Did you? Having <laughs> not seen yeah, having not seen the app, I've seen the Apple folks in its entirety a long time ago. Uh, probably more than once. I really want to see it again <laughs> because well, I I, I got it on disc. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. You know what? I think this is this trailer alone. Shows to me, I think this is holding up a lot better than I thought it would. So now I want to see it again. Well, that was my impression. You know, I'd heard funny things about. It. I remember seeing it a long time ago. I was like, I sort of remember that. I saw the trailer. I'm like, oh, this looks like it'll be, good. you know, at least some good laughs. And I was like, eh, you know, I have a lot more fun with Xanadu. I have a hell of a lot more fun with Can't Stop the Music. 
Uh, even something like, you know, thank God it's Friday or something tacky like that was more fun than the Apple. I thought the Apple was kind of a bust. Uh, but, you know, it's supposed to be about the music industry and this sort of um, Pollyanna-ish thing that crosses over with this Adam and Eve tale. And it's just, I don't know, it, it didn't make sense. It was pretty bad. Uh, and, of course, like I said, uh, Malcolm Golan was responsible for this masterwork, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, so, basically, what happened was they just kind of... Um, they took over the company, but they sort of lucked into a couple of things that were happening. Um, as we discussed, I think it was, was it last week when we were talking about that? Because uh, I know we had previously mentioned about how the 70s – yeah, it was the 70s television we are talking about. Um, the 70s were very – overall, I mean, not people I knew in small towns and things like that that was different, but in general culture – we're still kind of getting over the hippie thing and Watergate yeah. and Vietnam, and everybody was kind of laid back and smoking a lot of pot or other drugs of choice. Uh, and, you know, they were all kind of, you know, no nukes and ban the bomb, and, you know, everybody's protesting. There was good things about all this, but the end result was that, for the most part, people were pretty mellow and laid back, you know, like, hey, man, whatever. And yet there was this undercurrent building. With stuff like, you know, not even going to Europe to like the police attention and all that, but, you know, you had like Dirty Harry. The Dirty Harry films were huge. Uh, you had the Death Wish, uh, well, the original Death Wish, which was sort of a uh, critically hated, but sort of a cross celeb and very popular among, you know, the general public. Um, you had. And the, best, the best of the series, too, I think. The, well, the best you'll get. The best made, yes. There you go. The, the most one, the one you could show to people and say, "Oh, look, here is a film I would like you to watch," as opposed to "Let's have some fun," in which case you go for free. <laughs> but um, you know, they were putting out stuff like this, and then even you could say like the Rocky films, uh, the Kung Fu films that were coming over from uh, from China, um, the super violent Chambara films that were coming over from uh, Japan, the whole you know grindhouse exploitation arena. There was a lot of stuff popping up, so you know, but it was still sort of bubbling underground. You know, in the mainstream, you had the Dirty Harry films, you had Death Wish, and to the extent you see it that way, you get Rocky, and that was kind of it. You know, Bullet was like 1968, so we're like a decade past that already. These well, guys, urban violence, urban violence. I think the, the uh, Golden Globus mini Empire of Two kind of picked up probably on the urban violence going on in America around this period, yeah. late seventies, yep. early eighties. Uh, for those folks who did not live in the it's a case of point in New York metropolitan area, yeah. um, <laughs> things were pretty bad, and actually the police were felt so unempowered to do anything. They would hand out, I, I, God, I wish I kept these things. They handed out flyers. Welcome to Death City. <laughs> do you remember these? No. And, oh, yeah, I have to find one. And then I'll post it on Facebook. And these flyers, the cops would hand out, Welcome to Death City. And they had crudely drawn uh, needles and pills. And it was like, <laughs> be careful York City. Be careful if you're in Philadelphia. And it was this was during that period, and it's like, you know, things were kind of iffy everywhere. Yeah. And it was like, well, they're like, oh yeah, you know, we got as you you know as you just spoke of, you know, we get these influences from all these popular culture movies. But as far as if we're gonna get really gritty, you know, we could we could take ideas from real life. But of course, yeah. 
what I did remember, <laughs> what I did remember from this specific era, and you know, obviously New York, was uh, everybody being scared of getting mugged because a lot of people, like my folks, friends, and stuff, would go in some area, you know, go two blocks down, and you know, especially back then, every couple of blocks was a different world. Uh, and you didn't know this. There was no reason that it would be different, but yet that's what how it was. And you know, you never got you know coaxed into an alleyway or you know whatever the hell. But even on the street itself, you had muggings, you had purse snatchings, you had stabbings, you had all kinds of crap going down. And yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Central Park was obviously a no-no. Uh, the subways, I remember the Guardian Angels kind of rose up around this time, which was a good thing. You know, I remember being on the subway as a child and being happy to see like an angel sitting over there uh, because yeah. you know you didn't know it was really kind of dangerous and crazy in a lot of ways. Uh, not to the extent that um, I guess the movies played it up, but you know, you really got to be savvy. Let's put it that way. Uh, so you go yeah, ahead. You have to be savvy, yeah. And and you know, as far as uh, and 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 these Vietnam movies, were we still on them at that time? I'm not sure. Uh, well, I thought that that was supposedly we had uh, what do you call that? Not the regionalized. Uh, when when Nixon supposedly sent everybody home, that was like seventy five, seventy six. Uh, I think okay, it was so artificially. We but back. yeah, yeah, but they were yeah. still like, oh wait, this my buddies are missing. We got POWs, we got MIAs. Uh, there's still, you know, I hate to say fighting going on, but you know the battle scars. You know, people wandering around the streets that were obviously traumatized still, and like you couldn't trust them. You know, if they weren't already hooked on some really hard drugs, I mean, the heroin that they were getting over there was a lot stronger, more potent than what they get over here in the streets. Um, so these guys were tripping out just, you know, daily. You would see somebody walking down the street that just came back from Vietnam. You didn't know if they were going to flip and kill you. you know, it was that kind of a, uh, a vibe in the air. And, you know, it did happen sometimes. Obviously, a lot of people came back from Vietnam were fine, but this happened. Um, yeah, and I mean, Stallone's Rambo of all movies was, was hugely influential on the whole genre of, of things that Cannon did. Well, that was later, now, uh, but yes. Yeah. First Blood 2, yeah. That First was Blood, the original movie. one, I think, was like, what, 82? Was that it? Somewhere around there. And Rambo was like 85, so. As much, just going by memory, but. Um, yeah, yeah. But even so, okay, I mean, there was. We did our little thing. <laughs> there was a lot of that stuff going down, and of course, uh, I also, we had spoken to the Black Exploitation Arena, and of course, yeah. those films, people that are checking that out, they were super gritty, urban violence, you know, whatever. Um, but. This kind of a vibe for what, what most of those films did not have, maybe to some extent, Death Wish, but the first one was supposed to be. I mean, even Michael Winner was like embarrassed by the way people took it afterwards. Like, well, I'm supposed to be showing not that he's, you know, toughening up and becoming vigilante. I'm showing that Paul Kersey's falling apart, that he's going crazy. You know, he, that, that was his intent. Uh, so. You get almost like falling down later on in uh, with Michael Douglas, but that's another story. Uh, that was the intent that Winter had with that film. Um, you had this sort of uh, – I lost my train of thought there. But the, the idea is that originally this stuff was supposed to be more um, – a warning, you know, like, almost like a scare film in a way, as opposed to what it became. That, that's what I was going for. What it became under canon films and in the 80s and going forward was more of a neocon sort of paranoia thing where it's like, oh, my God, they're all out to get us and we've got to strike back because, you know, like you had mentioned about the cops being ineffectual, uh, you know, nobody's there to protect us. Nobody can help us. Yeah. We've got to do it ourselves. And 
you know, like we had mentioned when we were talking about this stuff in the past, yeah, you know, I, I kind of get the Bernie Getz thing. You know, the, I see you know somebody getting picked on all the freaking time and nobody doing anything about it and saying, well, you know what, fuck this, and maybe going overboard but react. And, you know, the Angels thing, I was totally for that. That was great. But, you know, technically it was, oh, that's vigilante justice, even though they sort of, you know, the, the cops kind of left them alone. They, were, they weren't cooperative. They were at least like, all right, fine. Well, at least they're there helping us out. Um that sort of a thing started becoming more and more in terms of vigilante justice, more in terms of, you know, everybody is a, a moocher and a scumbag and they're all out to get you and they're out to take from you and we've got to fight back. All right. You know, I can understand the, the emotionalism behind that, but it's a, it's a pointed, almost silly fantasy land way of looking at life. Uh, that's usually way out of proportion. You usually get like old folks sitting around watching a lot of TV on news, and especially now with Fox News, uh, that see the world this way. Like, oh, yes, they're all like this. Well, you know, reality will show you different if you're actually out there on the streets dealing with people. But, you know, it's good to be careful, like we were talking about. Uh, and I think that this vibe of paranoia and conservative rage and reaction was what came about around the time that, you know, Cannon got into, you know, kicked into force here. And that's what they were tapping into. That's the vibe they went for. And that's why their biggest stars to this day, if you say Cannon films, people say Charlie Bronson, Chuck Norris. You know, I say Dudikoff because he did all those American Ninja films and stuff like that, but he wasn't really the same cut of the mustard. It's it's that sort of damn it, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna fight back. You know, like worse than Dirty Harry or what Dirty Harry became later on. Uh, you know, I've got a big gun and I'm gonna take all you fuckers out. All right, so that's what Canon is going for, and there is an audience to which they can sit there and take this like it's serious, and I'm sure they love all this stuff. But where people like myself and then the younger kids that are into this nowadays, I think, uh, at least from what I'm hearing and picking up from talking to people, is more of a tongue-in-cheek like, well, can you fucking believe this? Yeah, go Charlie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're just sitting there like having a good old laugh on this stuff because it's so over the top and so uber violent and ridiculous. And it's like the level of watching the A-Team, which was, you know, like a cartoon basically, but with a lot of violence and grit thrown in. But it's also, you know, very 80s and day glow, so it's cheesy. Like the thugs, you know, they may seem scary, but if you're in a certain mindset or if you grew up in that era, okay, yeah, I remember guys like this that were tough. But if you're looking at it now, you're seeing a bunch of people that look like they escaped from Breaking 2, you know, <laughs> just like dancers with the jerry curl and the hairs and parachute pants and, you know, ridiculous mohawks and whatever else, and you're just sitting there pointing your finger at them and laughing. Uh, so that's what Canon specialized in. Uh, so before we move on, anything you wanted to tap into? No, no, it's good. Go ahead. Uh, so let's see. Let's, I'm just going to go straight on into the films themselves because, you know, th yeah, there's yeah. history involved here, but, you know, basically you get the idea. The bottom line was when these two guys moved in, this is the zeitgeist that they lucked into more or less. Uh, and they just blew up. And I remember, uh, not so much as a kid now, because we're talking about going into my teens and such, but I remember constantly, me and my father, and we were always going to movies, and nine times out of ten, it felt like it anyway, what came up with the Canon logo every time. And, and sometimes you'd even cheer. By the time we got to, like, Code of Science, like, yeah, it's Canon, you know, it's going to be good. Uh, <laughs> and part of that was Actually, that one was good. Yeah. Which one? Yeah. Uh, you Code know... 
Yeah. I was a fan of all these ninja films. I was a fan of Chuck Norris when I was a kid. You know, all that kind of stuff. So you were, we were going to see these things one after the other in the theaters. So that's another little uh, layer of amusement that you may or may not have. Uh, so just going back, we have mentioned stuff that they were doing with the Sarno films. You know, Ing, uh, To Anger My Love, Lisa, Love of Rebellion, Deep Inside, uh, Made in Sweden, which wasn't one of his, but it's a um, – uh, who's the other girl that's really popular that did uh, Exposed and um, uh, besides Lola Y'all? Uh, 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 Christina Lindbergh? Christina Lindbergh, yes. Uh, so it's a Christina Lindbergh film. They were picking up stuff like British things like Crucible of Horror. Uh, they picked up Franco Prosperi's uh, Goodbye Uncle Tom, which is kind of infamous, uh, and Jacopetti. Petty. Uh, I Monster or Pear Girls we talked about during the Slap and Tickle show. The Happy Hooker. Uh, they had those movies. Um, Lady and Rick Kill Seven Times, which was a Jalo. Uh, Mako Joseph Death from Bill Griffey, who I interviewed. Um, ups and Downs of a Handyman, again, another slap and tickle. God's Gun, which was a pretty bad late spaghetti western with uh, Lee Van Cleef. Um, but then, like I said, really it kind of kicked off once we got into the 80s. So they still did, you know, they, they did the last Happy Hooker film. They had The Godsend, which had the Angela Pleasance in it, you know, very strikingly odd-looking woman uh, doing one of those you know, evil nanny things. That's, that's kind of – you can tell the 80s is kicking off because now all of a sudden we're getting, like, worrying about kids and, you know, can we trust our caregivers and all this kind of crap. Uh, well, you know, in, in between all that, though, they did, they did pick up some oddball titles uh, beside the ones Sherry described. Uh, they did that Who Killed Mary, What's-Her-Name, which I actually saw in a theater. <laughs> which is uh, uh, a sort of hush-hush sweet Charlotte wannabe. Right. With, uh, I think it was Red Buttons. Uh, who's the big girl with the breast? The big lady with the brassy <laughs> mouth. Was she the girl? No, no, no. Not that kind of big. I mean, <laughs> big. Uh, Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters and Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds, wow. <laughs> And it was actually pretty eerie. It was pretty much, you know, in that hush hush sweet Charlotte vein. And it, you know, I forgot who made it, but it was like they picked that up and they released that. And I, and I sort of a double bill with another pickup from the I Monster, which was terrible, terrible. Oh, that was horrible. Yes, Christopher Lee is. Uh, yeah, if you ever see Christopher Lee movie you don't want to see, that's yes. that. That's the yeah. one. It, it's kind of like Jekyll and Hyde meets Jack the Ripper, and it doesn't work. It's so bad and boring. And worse, you know, to add insult to injury, I think it came out on something like Retro Media, so it's like full screen and washed out, and nobody ever cleaned the print up. Like, oh, my God. It's just a pain experience from start to finish. Uh, one of the worst British horror films I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that guy, Stephen, Stephen Weeks, um, he was, you know, he was known for that movie with Marion and Faithful about the ghost, and um, he received accolades for that. But uh, I didn't like that either. Um, but this is a strange moment. I think my turn off was like ten minutes into it. <laughs> um, you got that far, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, I watched the whole thing, but the turn off, not like literally turn off, but like turn off emotionally, was when yeah. like they kill a puppy. You know, Hyde kills a puppy, but Chris's version of Hyde you know, kills a puppy. I'm like, why did we do that? Yeah, it's no, really I saw the whole movie too, but it's like, oof. And you, know, you start drifting off. You know, you're doing other things like walk out of the room, go to the bathroom. You know, maybe you spend a couple extra minutes there brushing your teeth before you come back because it's that kind of movie. It's like, wow, is this over yet? Is anything going to happen that I want to keep this for that I want to see? And it never does. Did, 
Did you mention Operation Thunderbolt? Uh, no, it's not. That was something. Yeah, yeah. Or did, was that coming? Or No, no, you can go ahead. That, I kind of skipped over there earlier before uh, going Globus Gun, because that's still like 78. Uh, so I yeah, just kind of picked a couple of them. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that was that movie is based on a real incident. You know, like there's like three versions of that out there. Right on on Antibes, another one. Um, you know, all you know, it's like an all star type of vehicle. It has to do based on the Well, it's like a World War Two, uh almost like a spy no, type thing. Because I, I remember seeing no, Radon Tebby in on like TNT. They used to play it on one of those like Turner networks a lot, uh, but you know I never cared. Was, yeah, okay, whatever song. It's a their version of Radon and, and, and Tibby, which is like the plane load of passengers uh, bound uh, from Israel going somewhere, maybe back to America, uh, or uh, waylaid or something. It's based on a real incident, and there's like they brought in commandos to try to, uh, you know, to try to. Uh, save them, and actually, it was like reworked in Delta Force. Like I was just going to say, decade, it was like the Delta Force. <laughs> I was holding my breath. I was waiting for you to finish. So I could say that. <laughs> so yeah, you, but no, you no version it. is better than the other. Um, they're, they're, except the Delta Force one is actually a lot more watchable for a variety. And that of says something. <laughs> yeah, it says something. But both of them, both of these, like have like one has Peter French, one has Klaus Kinski. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you put all these things together, you you have some really oddball casting things going on. But yes, we're we're in the '80s now, and they're, they're doing pickups. Well, and yeah, they still got pickups. Like production. I had mentioned the Happy Hooker films and the Godsend. They did a couple of the slasher films that they were still. I don't know if they're producing. They're picking them up. Uh, Schizoid with Klaus Kinski, which was a strange one. I had Marianna Hill, who was in um, the hell was that one? The zombie one with the gas station. Uh, she was also oh, on Price is Right. I understand. No, I was thinking of uh, what's the one that covered oh, yeah. pretty early on, uh, Messiah of Evil. Uh, I remember her being yes, really yes, pretty in that. Right, you're correct. Yeah, and like yeah. I mentioned, she was in uh, from The Price Is Right back in the early '70s. But Schizoid was just strange. I mean, group therapy with a bunch of like old, you know, forty-ish uh, housewives, and is Kinski the killer? Is he not? Is very. I mean, it's watchable. I mean, Kinski's in it. You know, Marianne Hill's like still. For her age at this point, so attractive. Uh, yeah, yeah. At this point, she was. Uh, she, you could tell that she was kind of getting a little bit uh, on, but you know, it's still watchable. It's just like it's not really good. And I wouldn't say, oh wow, a great slasher put on Schizoid. And, yeah, okay. Well, if you're really seeing everything else and you still want to see one, here you go. Um, New Year's Evil, which is another one of those. Uh, I hate to say, to me it felt like it was the end of the slasher boom, but it was really at the beginning, uh, which says something. Uh, there's some, you know, amusing new wave music in it, uh, but you know, it's about a radio DJ that's getting stalked by the slasher, and I don't know. It, it, it's again another one of these ones that's watchable, but you feel like it's uh, the slasher's in its dying days when really it was not. <laughs> Um, like, we mentioned the apple. One, one of the leads, the lead, one of the leads on New Year's Eve was, uh, if I'm correct, I'm doing this. Yeah, Ross Kellman. Who the hell she? She was on Happy Days. Oh, she was Pinky Tuscadero. Yes, you got it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, yeah. We're rocking tonight. <laughs> I didn't even yeah, know yeah, that. So, I was like, okay, she's attractive, but who the hell is she? <laughs> like, Ross Kelly and her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, she, she had a little, 
fizz and bang, and so, you know, happy days. So like, <laughs> let's put her in this movie. Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis is doing well. Let's put Roz Kelly, and then people are like, who the fuck is that? Yeah. <laughs> well, and remember, this is also Roz Kelly here, uh, Pinky Tuscadero now, is from the era of happy days, which inspired the phrase jump the shark, which people use to this day to say, okay, well, something was great, and then all of a sudden, oh, that's when I write down the crapper. So that should say something yeah. to you as well. <laughs> Why nobody knows who the fuck Ross Kelly is, including me. Uh, <laughs> but now, now I know. You do. Now you do. Now I know. Before yeah. she was like, ah, she's redhead. She's kind of cute. But who the fuck is she? Uh, <laughs> and they did uh, one that I do like a lot. But again, for camp reasons, uh, Hospital Massacre, which is better known as X-Ray, uh, with, yeah. of all people, Barbara Denton, who was, uh, I think she was uh, one of Hefner's wives, but she was definitely uh, a big deal over the Playboy Mansion during this time. Uh, attractive mm-hmm. girl, but you know, you want to talk about bimbo? Dumb as wood. You can see it in her eyes. It's like empty. She's like, oh. she doesn't even know what planet she's on. I think, and I don't mean because she's stoned. I mean she just doesn't know. She's that dumb. Uh, <laughs> but that, and, that movie has a has an entertaining uh, has entertainment value. Um, oh, yeah. it's like it somehow like, works. It's Halloween too. But more over the top, you know. The acting is more over the top. The killer is crazy and pop-eyed. Uh, it's just, what are you going to say? It, like I said, it's Halloween two done by a crackhead. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. But somebody might put that on the on the DVD release. You never know. <laughs> it's already out on Blue. Never know. And those listening, when the hell are, are Doc Savage and I going to do a DVD commentary? Right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. I've heard some really bad comedy uh, commentaries on some discs. I'm like, where did they get these guys? So here we are. We're ready for you. <laughs> We're ready. We're ready. We'll we'll work for scale. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get all the facts here and we'll rip it apart for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as we get free discs and we get notoriety and our name is plugged in the thing, we're doing. We're there for you guys. Come on. There you go. I mean, I already did that one for the, the Retro Media. Uh, not Retro Media. Uh, what was that? Retro Vision. Uh, that kid that did uh, the shark movies. And it was some bad uh, SOV shark film. I forget the name of the thing. So if you guys are interested, go out and check it out. I am on that disc doing a uh, basically a voiceover for one of his extras. Uh, that, you know, <laughs> I did not write it. I polished up the writing that was there. So I made it a little bit more uh, listenable and amusing. But basically, uh, I'd never seen that film before. <laughs> before I was on the disc. <laughs> it's amusing enough. For, for an SOV shark film, it's not bad. Well, no, the only reason why I mentioned that, I, I, I've been looking at, of course, you know, I'm not, well, yeah, they're worth a plug. They're good guys. Mondo Digital, the review website for, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays and other review and stuff. And I see you now all this new stuff coming out. Like, Emo Schwargerhertz does a commentary. Who the fuck are these people? <laughs> <laughs> I've been around yes. for a long time, guys. Lo- longer than Doc Savage, but not by much, thank God. <laughs> we've both been around for a long time and and it's like who who are these people you know like okay yeah. you know like david del Pell, i is a trust tom weaver you know these are these people are around forever you know. yeah that's different but you got people that are i mean there's some guy that keeps popping up on i don't know if it's raro but they're definitely italian discs usually italian crime discs I'm like who yeah. the fuck is this guy why are we paying attention for 15 minutes and like yeah, whatever 
So <laughs> so if they can do it, we certainly can, and probably better. So here we are. Yeah, oh, another, another guy. Yeah, another guy who's worth paying attention to is uh, Jasper Sharp, who's written all these oh, yeah. academic books on uh, Japanese uh, uh, shambara and nakatsu type stuff. But uh, if I see he does something. Yeah, Patrick I, I, I is usually good. You know, he does a lot of Japanese stuff yeah. more towards the anime and pop culture. Uh, they yeah. Gavin Baddeley, who's actually okay. Well, he he runs a uh, the Church of Satan. He's a representative of that out in England, but he's also a cult film and music uh, person. Written some very good books, and he pops up on some things usually with Redemption or whatever. And I always pay attention to his stuff, but, but you know. Uh, there aren't that many nowadays that are like, oh, look, here's an authoritative uh, voice to put on this disc. I'm like, eh, whatever. Who are these people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, so we're up to Enter the Ninja? Yes. Now, this is where I, you really know. Before this, is like, yeah, you know, they, they might still be doing pickups. Maybe they're just kind of floundering around. Okay, let's kick into the slasher trend a little bit. Let's keep these Happy Hooker movies going. You know, I got to do the Apple, whatever. All of a sudden now, we get into the ninja craze. They, basically, I think that Canada is actually responsible for the ninja craze of the 80s. Uh, I was young enough to be in on that in terms of like, oh, cool. You know, I had a book on like, you know, ninjas or whatever the hell back in high school. Uh, you know, I would check out all these movies as they came out, even though they were horrible. We were kind of like scratch our heads like, why are they so stupid? But, all right, well, that's funny. Anyway, let's get the next ninja movie. Um I think the Octagon from Chuck Norris may have been the first, and that was another company. It might have been MGM for a while now because I think Chuck was doing some films with them originally. Uh, and those are the things we were going to see in the theater already. That's why I was like a Chuck fan. of seeing like you know, good guys wear black and uh, Force of One and the Octagon. And, all this. and I think the Octagon was really the first film – to bring over the you know culture of ninjutsu, which again is a lot of fantasy land, a lot of myth. Uh, I mean, even Japanese themselves sort of like laugh at it a little bit. Uh, but over here, it just came over the top, and it started off with Enter the Ninja. Uh, this film is <laughs> beyond belief. I mean, Chuck Norris fighting Shokasugi in the octagon. All right, yes, it's kind of cheesy. I mean, it's very cheesy. It's very canon-esque. But it was still Chuck in his Zen metaphysics period where he spends a lot of time whispering over the soundtrack and he's trying to be deep and meaningful and whatever. And here, okay, yeah, you've got whatever, but they've got good fighters in there. Richard Norton's in it. I mean, these people were all competent as some form of martial artist that they would be out, you know, competing or whatever, you know, stunt coordinators, that kind of a thing. You got to enter the ninja, and it's like, who are we going to cast? I don't know. How about Franco Nero? <laughs> so Franco Nero is there with a big, bushy-ass mustache. Uh, Kasugi did show up in it, uh, but who's the real baddie in it? Not Kasugi. You've got Christopher George, who I love. But, okay, yeah, my, my drunken buddy from uh, Pieces and Fulci's, um, you know, what was it, City, uh, City of Living Dead, which was um, – better known as Gates of Hell. Uh, you know, and Susan George is in this thing, who we talked about when we're talking about the, uh, the British, not just the um, Slap and Tickles, but you know, the British films per se. Uh, you know, so it's a good cult cast, but we're talking about Franco Nero as a ninja and Christopher George as the baddie who's like, you know, threatening him and I'm going to take you down. Oh, sure, 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 yes, he yeah. is. Yes, he is, but like yeah, I said, yeah. he's not the main baddie. It's Christopher George. Oh, he's not the... Yeah, right, right. You've got to be fucking kidding me. He's not even the star. Yeah. So, 
at least, you know, the Octagon, all right, you know, there was this whole thing about ninjas, and it was more like a training camp that these mercenaries were doing. And, okay, there was stuff in there. Leaving a cleat, this is how he kicked off, later on became the master on TV, which is hilarious, with, you know, Salami, Timothy Van Patten. Uh, love that show. They should really put that thing out on disc. It's just that camp classic. Um, but so yeah, the we're going around the towns and we're like helping people. Oh boy! Uh, but um, you know, this movie kind of kicked off this whole white ninja thing, which later would result in the career of Michael Dudikoff, among others. Um, what is there to say about it that I didn't already say? There's nice sets, like I said, it's a fantastic cult cast. But it's you know really you know, you know perhaps Franco Nero and Christopher George as action heroes. <laughs> with Kasugi, they're trying to help out. Come on, it doesn't work. And Susan George is kind of getting into her early 80s, not quite milfy, but she's getting a little bit more yuppified. You know, she's not the hot Dolly Bird British number that she was in the 60s and 70s anymore. She's kind of uh, settling down and getting to be a bit housefrowy. You, you notice this by the time she gets to uh, – what's the Japanese one, the, the fake Japanese one that she did, the house for the um, – Oh, jeez, I can't remember. Remember the ghosts possessed them? Uh, they, they move into a house and the ghosts take them over and they have reenacting. Oh, this very strange. Yeah, yeah, that's the one yeah. with Edward Albert and Doug McClure, right? Yeah, I always liked that movie, but by then it was like, yeah, this is not the same Susan George I was into. <laughs> this is kind of like somebody's mom. Uh, <laughs> so she's kind of getting into that period by now. Uh, house Where Evil Dwells, that's the name of that one. Yeah, uh, so, you know, we've got... Even Venom, I think, was before this. So by the time you get to Enter the Ninja, it's like, yeah, you can see the writing on the wall. Uh, but is there anything you wanted to say about this other than you know what I already addressed here? Well, <laughs> you roll all over the place for this one. Enter the Ninja. Well, um, it looks good. Uh, the recent, uh, recently released Blu-ray uh, actually looks nice. Uh, it's funny that they chose Franco Nero because you know his. <laughs> Tenure, he's laughing. His tenure as the icon of spaghetti westerns was like a good, I don't know, five years before this. So, like, I don't. Somebody. Knew I would it. say his real thing as a spaghetti western star was with Django and Kaoma and stuff like that, which were, like you said, five years would be like Kaoma. But you know, Django was like ten, twelve years before this. Um, he right. was doing a lot of. Italian crime sort of things, everything from how to kill a judge to hitchhike. But, you know, pe- as a ninja? I mean, <laughs> uh, and he's yeah. going around in a mask. And remember, he's a ninja. It's not snow time. So we're like, okay, we figure, okay, the ninja's going to blend in with the snow. No, it's like, you know, springtime. And he's going around in a white outfit where, yeah. you know, like Cesar Romero and, and the Joker and Batman, where you could always see his big bushy mustache and they put the makeup over it. Here he's in a ninja outfit, and it's like you can see the outlines of a mustache and the whole thing. It's ridiculous. How are they not going to know it's him and not know he's coming from five miles away? Plus, you know, like I said, you can tell that he is not live. He doesn't even have, like, the dancer's moves. He's an actor. You know, he's just, like, kind of, like, wanders well, around trying to be. <laughs> the, the, big, the biggest problem, too, was that Franco now was a big guy. Yeah. He was a small guy. He was a big guy. So actually, when he wasn't in the ninja outfit, he was throwing people around, throwing Susan George around. It was, it was okay. But when when they put him in the suit, and suddenly it's not. You know, it's not Franco Nero anymore. Right. But then they would cut to Franco with the revealing eyes because he has amazing blue eyes. And, <laughs> and the mustache sticking through the mask. And 
Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, it's Franco Nero. We know it's him. But then they were cut to some, like, very lightsome, smaller guys. Yes. He was. He was, like, half yeah. his weight, at least, if not half his size. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, very, very strange. Yeah, but it's entertaining. Yeah. Yes. I'm amazed, though, that it kicked off the craze that it did. I mean, you said that the Octagon was the kickoff, and then, you know, they had Octagon Part 3 and 4 and 5, and they started casting other actors. It would be one thing, but Enter the Ninja? Really? This is going to start a craze uh, and have a bunch of sequels that, you know, don't actually star anybody that's involved with it, really? Uh, it's... <laughs> It's mind-boggling, especially nowadays. I mean, who knows? Nowadays, most films are so bad. But at the time, I was like, "What the hell? All right, whatever. You know, it's entertaining enough. I'll, I'll watch them." Uh, <laughs> and you know, being at the age you were when you saw it, you, you weren't quite as credulous as you became in later viewings as you got older. I'm like, "What the fuck was this? Really?" <laughs> um, so speaking of absurdities, one of the next things that they go to is they decide, you know what, we just, uh, I don't even know what they continue other than the Happy Hooker films, but let's go and make a sequel to Death Wish. Now, Death Wish was just like 74, I believe, uh, and it was, you know, we had mentioned it. 72, I think. 72, maybe. It was a serious film, you know, about, you know, set in New York, uh, about this guy. He's an architect. He's very much a peacenik, if not a pacifist. Uh, you know, very philosophical. He's talking about this stuff the whole time. His daughter gets raped, and I think she gets put in you know, a concussion or some crap, and uh, ends up in a wheelchair if she doesn't die. She might die as well. I can't remember the detail. Uh, and his wife gets raped and killed, uh, and he's kind of basically left alone. Uh, so he gradually, you know, because he's going around to the cops, they won't do anything. He's you know putting flyers around. Nobody's helping out. He's getting harassed by the cops. So finally he starts getting this, I don't know, the urge for revenge, and he goes around and he starts throwing Like the first thing, he puts like a bunch of coins in a sock, and he goes around and tries to basically be a do-gooder. You know, somebody's getting their purse snatched or something, and he goes and gets into a fight with these guys using that, and it's not too good a weapon, and he ends up throwing up afterwards, like you had mentioned when we talked about this last time. Uh, he's really repulsed by what he's becoming, and yet he's gradually going more and more to whatever you want to call it, the dark side, the vigilante side, embracing the animal within, whatever it may be. Uh, getting his revenge eventually, and before you know it, he's this crazed vigilante going around with a gun and shooting off all these, you know, muggers and killers and shit. And at the end of the film, it gets a little bit more ambiguous because the cop who's been following him the whole time catches up with him, knows it's him, uh, basically says, "Here, give me a gun and get the fuck out of here. I don't know you. Move to another city." So it was like, well, okay, I guess they wanted him to do that after all, even though they kind of fought against the whole time. Um, so it had some ambiguous messages for good, for bad, for indifferent. Uh, why would you say, you know what, let's go whatever it was, you know, five to eight years later, and let's make a sequel to this, and we're going to make it – all right, people say this is still the serious one. It's not serious. These are comedies by the time you get to canon films. Uh, the first one, here he is. He moves out to L.A., and they sort of reprise the plot. But it's done in a way that, okay, once you get past the unpleasant, whatever it is, first half hour, when all this stuff goes on with the rape and everything else, uh, which is kind of hard to watch, just like it was in the first one, but it doesn't have the gravitas of the first time, because all of a sudden you've got, 
I don't know what I remember from this one specifically because you know, I saw all the Death Wars films in a rush, uh, and this was like a year and a half ago too. Uh, I discussed them. Anybody that's interested in hearing more live, like I had just seen these films and this is great, uh, go back and check episodes of At Eye Level from around that time because we were talking a lot of canon films and a lot of kickboxing films because I was really into a kick at that point. Uh, a lot of laughs there, but anyway. Uh, what I remember specifically from Death Wish 2 was Jill Ireland, who's uh, – was, I think she was his wife, uh, Charlie Bronson's yes. wife at the time. Uh, he brings her in, and he brought back Michael Winner. Uh, not that it really shows, but okay. Um, he, basically, he has her as a – I think she's like a lawyer, and he gets involved with her. It's like this little you know, touching little romance that they throw into this. And at one point – this guy who's basically the the thug of the piece, and it's hilarious because he's this crazy pop-eyed, you know, blonde-haired thug who he uh, when Bronson ends up in jail with him at one point, you know, they throw him in the tank just for whatever reason. The boss is nuts, and the guy decides to pick on him, not just as the new fish, but he's like personally freaking out and threatening him. He's like, yeah, when you get out of here, I'm going to fuck your whole family up. And this insane performance by this guy. It's hilarious. And so this guy eventually obviously finds out that they're involved. So she's sitting there in her car. She's just leaving the apartment and going off to drive off. He comes in. They're in San Francisco, right? Uh, I said it earlier before, San Francisco, because uh, I remember from this hill. So <laughs> they're in this hill. Guy walks by. She just gets in her car, and you see like a hand come by. Boom! Pops her right in the mouth while she's sitting there in her car. <laughs> so that wasn't funny enough. He then goes and takes the car and drops it into neutral, and it rolls down the hill, but it rolls down really freaking slowly. It's going about, I don't know, maybe 12 miles an hour, you know, coasting, because uh, the car is not running. It's just kind of like rolling down the hill a little bit, and it's not even that huge. I mean, maybe I was right about LA in the first place. It wasn't that much of an incline, but it's going down the hill, and it's going towards, you know, there's like a building up ahead, and you figure it's going to hit that, and at the speed it was going, it probably just wanted to bump. And maybe she would have hit her head against the windshield and the, the front end might have been a little messed up. That's really all that would have happened at the speed this car is going. Instead, it goes down to the building, the traffic light changes, and there's like cars going left and right, and there's huge accidents, and you know, people screaming over, and boom, it hits this one car, which again, probably going about 12 miles an hour best. And there's this fireball explosion that you would think Rambo dropped in with the entire U.S. Army that they're going <laughs> carpet bomb Vietnam or something. It's so out of proportion to what was going on. It's so ridiculous. This movie was like – I was sitting there just laughing my ass off, and I was practically crying watching it. It's that funny. So how you could possibly say this is a serious film, I have no fucking idea. Um, Tony Francios is in it. Vincent Gardini is in it, I think, once again, because he probably brought him over from the original film. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's just absurd. And it only gets worse after this, uh, or funnier, if you prefer. Uh, so is there anything you want to say about this one before we move on? Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the rape stuff, because um, it's hard to take in the first death wish. Goes to Mrs. Muir. Oh yes. Well, and Jeff Goldblum was one of the rapists. That's how how <laughs> how far was back weird? Go. I couldn't believe yeah. that. I'm like, wow, oh, he's strange looking back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you actually, yeah, it's true. If you guys take a quick look, Jeff was one of the like, 
crazed young gang guy. Uh, like so Remember him shoplifting? <laughs> Making a big stink in the supermarket? Right <laughs> yeah, I was like, because yeah. Jeff Goldblum took some happy pills or something. It looks good. <laughs> um, Deathwish 2 has actually two rape scenes, and both of them brutal. Oh, yeah. And they, and they think that uh, both Canon, probably Michael Wonder one, up the ante, like, to, like, uh, well, what are the high points of Death Wish? Well, it wasn't the rape scene. <laughs> like I said, the first half hour. The first half hour is tough to take, even in this film, which becomes a complete comedy mm. afterwards. But they did keep that part from the first film, and like you said, they might have upped it a little bit, because it's like, ah, this is hard to watch. It's hard to watch. I think it was. I think it was the one with the uh, the Spanish. Uh, you know, because the daughter's still a vegetable. That was the thing that was rough in this. The daughter was right. still a vegetable, and the, there was. A house and then they the throw her out on the, uh, the like the trellis outside, like a spike trellis, and they threw her out the window, and she broke her yeah. back. Yeah. On, on it. Yeah. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> well, if that wasn't enough, let's do this too. You know, I was like, come on. Man. <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 excessive, but it did really well. All of a sudden, you know, because uh, I guess, you know, Charles was not wanting for work, that's for sure, and uh, uh, certainly was successful doing a variety of movies for a variety of students. Paramount, you know, he did a lot of stuff. Um, this and revived the series. Suddenly, it just did well because people were still clamoring for this kind of vengeance thing. Yep. And don't forget, he was getting older now, so he was no longer – I mean, he was always Charlie Bronson. He was always a little you know, tough, but uh, I hate to say unattractive, but he wasn't really like a, a leading man in that respect. Uh, he wasn't like, oh, look, all the girls are hot for him. It was just kind of like an everyday Joe, I guess. And yet here he is, and he's pushing, I don't know, his mid-40s, his early 50s. He was looking old, uh, getting a little bit of a paunch, and yet here he is making his almost second career – in okay, he always did tough guy roles, did stuff like the mechanic and Saint Eyes and whatever. But here he is doing this, these vengeance films, and this became what he did for the rest of his career. It was like a second life for him. So, yeah. um, so after this, they, they're still doing strange things. They get Lady Chatterley's Lover, which was a uh, Just Jake and Sylvia Christel thing with Shane Bryant, who was the Hammer film star uh, towards the end. Um, Alien Contamination was better known as Contamination, the, the Luigi Cozzi film, uh, which is a strange thing to pick up and put out. Um, the Last American Virgin, which is the directed by the same guy that did X-Ray, uh, which is a comedy. Um, so basically, one of those very sex well comedies. Did very well for them, sex comedy thing. Those teen sex comedies were huge in the eighties. I watch a lot of them, but and it's like baffling. Like, what the hell is this doing coming from canon? It doesn't belong. Uh, it's like one of these things is not equal to the others. But then again, this is the company that put out three Happy Hooker films. Uh, so they did then one that we'll probably address one day because uh, I know we were talking about doing spaghetti westerns and specifically touching on his films. Uh, they did the last of the Tony Anthony films. Uh, Tony Anthony was a I think he was from Brooklyn, uh, Italian fella, uh, who went over to Italy and did he he made his name as the, you know these stranger films. Um, I think there was three of them officially, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he did the Blind Man with um, Ringo Starr, Ringo. and then he did the fourth one, which 
technically still is a Stranger film, and it's actually my favorite of all his films, really, uh, which was Get Mean. Fantastic, screwed-up film. I love this thing. But, you know, some people say, well, is it really a spaghetti western? And you can argue that it isn't. Again, we'll address this some other day. Uh, yeah, but, and then there's the three Stranger movies, right? Right. And then, after all this, well, I'm going chronological, so Stranger movies were Florida. But still, yes. Uh, he goes and does... Um, I wouldn't say it's a comeback because he was still doing these films kind of late into the 70s. I think uh, Get Mean was like 75 and uh, might have finally got released around 78. But here we are, and he does two things. First, he goes and says, you know what? Let's bring back 3D. And actually, if you remember, I remember as a child there, uh, the early 80s, there was a 3D revival. It was a bit of a craze uh, that brought us all the way up to things like, you know, uh, Friday the 13th, part 3D, and, you know, uh, Jaws 3D, and uh, I think Amityville 3D, and God knows what else. It started because of Tony Anthony and Coming At You, which was, again, not really a stranger yeah. film, but it was a, a Western in, in those veins. So what does he do after this? He does one for Canon Films, which I liked even more. It's my second favorite of his films, which I saw in the theater at the time, and it was the best fucking 3D I ever saw in my life. We were in the middle of the theater, and I've said this before, but I swear to God, I looked up. I wasn't looking at the screen. I looked up, and I saw they they like thrust a pole at you, and the pole went like pretty much over my head. I'm like, how is this even possible? What kind of technology are they using here? Uh, You know, and I I was young. I wasn't like, you know, okay, I'm some stoner. Where the hell am I been tripping? No, this was. I saw this out. I'm like, what the fuck? Really? And you know, my father's sitting there. I'm like, how is this possible? Yeah, it was great. You know, snakes coming at you, whatever else. Uh, so Treasure of the Four Crowns was actually at least picked up by Canon. Uh, another Ferdinando Baldi who did the best films that Tony Anthony did. Uh, his earlier Stranger films were a little bit of a tough slog because he had a different director with him. Um, Francisco Robal's in it, who was uh, you know famous uh, Spanish actor of, of the time. But it's kind of like trying to be Indiana Jones, but the plot is kind of messed up. I mean, it's really got that sort of Italian film logic that's not really logic, where they just threw together, okay, well, here's a bunch of set pieces. Uh, do we have to give them a motivation? Yeah, I guess we'll kind of throw one in there, just you know, toss it off in the dialogue for a second, and hopefully nobody will notice. And that's the kind of film it is. But I never, and here's one that everybody's going to really hate me for, I never liked the Indiana Jones films. I never cared for them. Uh, I remember seeing them when I was young, and I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, my uncle took me to see this I think it was the second one, uh, Temple of Doom. Uh, and he was getting a huge kick out, and I was amused by his reactions. I was like, eh, you know, it's not that great, whatever. I never watched it again. I never felt the urge to see any of these things in recent memory. I don't have any of them on disc. Uh, it's just they don't do anything for me. But this film and some other Italian ones that are like it, I do enjoy, you know, I enjoy, like, what is that, Ark of the Sun God uh, with David Warbeck. I enjoy the hell out of Treasure of the Four Crowns. Uh, Stupid film, but great set pieces. Fun 3D. It deserves to be on one of those, you know, hybrid uh, 2D, 3D Blu-rays, just like they were coming at you recently. So somebody should pick this up and put it out. I know that uh, it was on one of those cheapo uh, Shout Factory sets where they put, like, four films out there. And it kind of had the red uh, tint that you do when you do 3D in those days. Uh, so it really needs to be cleaned up and put out properly. But loads of fun, uh, even though there's absolutely no purpose to it whatsoever. It's something about you know gems or something that are going out. The usual for this kind of thing. Uh, nice movie. Yeah, yeah. But it's you know involved. 
Tomb Raider-ish. What else do you want? <laughs> Tomb Raider-ish, Indiana Jones-ish, but yeah, loads of fun. Um, so you didn't this, like Indiana Jones? What is that thing you dropped upon me there? It's true. <laughs> I never liked it. I mean, and I like Harrison Ford. You know, Han Solo was great. How can you not like him? But it's just, I don't know. The, the films never did anything for me. Snakes. I can't stand snakes. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, I always liked the first. I like the first and the fourth. You know what it is? I don't like Spielberg. He doesn't do anything for me. Uh, beyond the fact that I, I blame him and Lucas for what the, the state the film is in nowadays and killing the independence, uh, which is pretty close lineage. I've made an argument for that many times. Uh, besides that, his films just don't work for me. You know, Close Encounters is sort of okay. You know, Jaws is watchable. Uh, that's kind of about it. <laughs> really, I don't have any trust well, in Spielberg. We have to yeah. talk about this one day because, because yeah. yeah, I have problems with the second, third, and the fourth that no one liked, I liked. <laughs> really? Is that the That's one the with uh, with Sean Connery or the one with his kid? No, 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 it's the one with the kid, but that's, that's, that's negligible because, they, you know, they brought Karen Allen back. And yeah. It was great to see, like, you know, like this actually worked, you know. Anyway. But anyway, that's for another show. Uh, so they go back to Bronson now. And, well, no, seriously, because uh, <laughs> we got to talk canon here. i got to get this over. Uh, <laughs> Ten to Midnight was, all right, if you're going to name Bronson Films, I love Death Wish 2 and 3. I think they're freaking hilarious. Uh, my favorite Bronson films, just as straight-up Bronson films, yeah, I'd probably say something like Violent City or The Mechanic. Really good stuff. I enjoy St. Ives a lot. You know, I do like Bronson films per se. I'm almost a Bronson fan. I wouldn't quite put myself in there because I've seen people that are serious Bronson fans. But, you know, compared to the average person I am, I do have a lot of his films and I do enjoy them. But 10 to Midnight is one of my favorites, uh, especially from the canon era. You're talking one that will cost later, which is Kinjite, which is my all-time favorite of these kind of junks. And 10 to Midnight is really close. Basically... Uh, of all people, Lisa Aubacher, who is from the Sean Cassidy, Parker Stevens, and Hardy Boys series <laughs> from the 70s. Uh, Andrew Stevens, who was Stella Stevens' son and would wind up on a lot of cheap HBO Skinamax jobs like you know Night Eyes and all this kind of crap where he's you know with his perfect hair there going and making out with all these women, you know, softcore bordering uh, thrillers. Uh, Kelly Preston who was uh, Doreen of Spellbinder, who I've seen that one, which I enjoyed, and also became uh, Mrs. John Travolta at one point. Wilf- Wilford Brimley, the old fat guy that used to advertise like Pepperidge Farm or whatever the hell, and now he's like always on TV trying to sell like diabetes monitors or whatever the hell. Uh, and Charlie Bronson. The film, though, is unfucking believable Basically, it's supposed to be a serial killer slasher type film. But anybody that can sit there and watch this without laughing their ass off, and I mean like laugh your ass out so hard you're going to spit your drink out, I really don't understand you. This is the funniest (laughs) film ever made. It's so stupid. Uh, Basically, this guy, I think it was supposed to be vaguely based on the Richard Speck case, but they say that about a lot of movies. Uh... This guy, I think he's bordering on gay. He's really like a pretty boy type and a little too sweet. Uh, And he's got some kind of issue where he's got to kill women or girls. Uh, I'm not sure what his exact motivation was, like what the trigger was that set him off. But whenever he would do it, he would have to strip down naked and then stab them to death. And 
you know, seeing his little like you know hairless butt and legs running around, like oh my god, this is what are we watching here? And the ending of the film is the funniest part of all because, he, of course, once again it turns into this sort of neocon thing. It's like, oh, what are you gonna do about me? All I can do is put me, say I'm insane, and put me in an asylum, and then I'll be out again in two years. Ha 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 ha! And of course, at the end, you know, he's standing there in the middle of the freaking street, and I don't know where it was, L.A. or whatever, uh, with all these cops surrounding him, with a knife in his hand. Buck fucking naked and doing this like threats and act, you know, totally overacting. Uh, and Bronson's like, yeah, this is what I'll do. He blows him away, shoots him right in the head with all the cops standing. Like, yeah, okay, whatever, just walk away. It is funny, funny shit. I mean, you got to have a certain sense of humor, obviously, but unbelievable. I really do get a laugh. I was 10 to midnight. I highly recommend it. Uh, <laughs> anything you want to say about this one? What could I add to that? Uh, it was it was violent. I remember that it was violent. Oh, yeah. It was a bit gory. And actually, who was the director? Was it J. Lee Thompson? Maybe. Uh, yeah, um, he was. Yeah. He actually got a a more mobile performance uh, out of Bronson <laughs> than the winner had done. You know, uh, and Bronson actually moving around more and. He's actually emoting a little bit more. For some reason, I don't know, maybe he thought this was a better movie than it turned out to be. <laughs> but he certainly, certainly is investing a little bit more of himself in this picture. Than, um, Bronson's would think. acting ability is negligible. I, mean, I think when you saw him in the 60s, he gets sort of pulled off. It's like, okay, well, he's all right in an ensemble cast. You know, He's not bad. Uh, but he was always kind of like sullen and, you know, untalkative. And why, by the time he started getting into maybe this age bracket that he's in or, you know, the kind of films that he's doing, these neocon revenge fantasies or whatever, uh, all of a sudden everything's about you, my daughter, you son of a bitch, and I'm going to throw this fucking thing to your head. Although he wouldn't even have the courage to swear a lot of times. He'd just kind of be like, I'm going to take this and I'm going to wrap it around your neck and then I'm going to, you you dirty scum, you, you rapist, you yeah, bitch. That wasn't his style to use expletives too much. Well, it wasn't yeah. only to a little bit on, yeah. Exactly, and it just that becomes who he is, and that's his persona in every film. And every scene he's in, he will say something like that. He will act like that, whether he's in a police station or dealing with some scumbag in the streets or talking to his friends like you know, we'll get to with Death Wish 3. Uh, he is, that's his entire acting range and his entire um, whatever he's willing to invest in a role. Which is hilarious. You know, it's one of the reasons I get a kick out of these films. They're funny. Um, but, you know, to some people, and I guess if, if you were of a certain generation or a certain mindset, you know, oh, yes, this is my hero, you know, Charlie Bronson. I wish I was just like him or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny, too, just thinking about somebody out there like that. Um, so, anyway, uh, we move on to another Coetzee film. Coetzee, for some reason, had a relationship with Canon Films. I don't know if they were just picking up the stuff he was making or if they were helping to fund it or what. Because after, you know, they already did Contamination. Now, what did they do? Both of the Hercules films uh, with Lou Ferrigno, which I get a kick out of them. I think they're total 80s cheese. But, you know, they're junk. Um they have good casts. I mean, Sybil Danning and William Berger, Brad Harris. Brad Harris. I mean, you know, these people were at least Pepla stars and you know, Spaghetti Western stars and things like that. Bobby Rhodes, who pops up and stuff like Demons around the same time. Um, let's see, who was in the second one? I got to look ahead for that one. 
Uh, well, we'll get there when we see it. But basically, they are very, very comic book. It's not like your daddy's Hercules. Hercules movies, purple films were always very fantasy based, always very cheesy. Always, you know, basically you're focused on, you know, that's why they're big gay following a bunch of guys that were like fairly muscular, running around in little skirts and sandals, basically, and nothing else, going and beating the crap out of each other, and a lot of times, you know, fakely romancing some pretty Italian girl, uh, which never really went anywhere in these films. And then they would go and fight some cheap monster a lot of times, like the Medusa or the Hydra or whatever. Fun stuff. I mean, they get boring if you see a lot of them in a row, especially if they're all just the war ones. But, you know, a lot of fun. But when you see the Ferrigno ones with uh, Coetzee, all of a sudden it's a comic book. I mean, they are so ridiculous. Bad, you know, because Coetzee loved sci-fi, so he, but he had no money ever, so he did some really bad hands-on special effects that generally involved laser lights, scratching on the emulsion, you know, uh, silly costumes, you name it. Anybody that knows the Coetzee film kind of knows what they're in for here. Uh, and, of course, a lot of bad acting, despite the fact that you have some big-name actors. What do you say about Clash of the Titans, too? I think they were kind of feeding off the, fra- the, the craze and frenzy that was created by films like Clash of the Titans. There is that very much of that vibe in this. Um, I'm not sure what else to say about the Hercules films other than that. If you do like that kind of cheese, you will love these films. And if you want something more serious, stay the hell away. But then again, you should probably stay the hell away from canon. Um, you know, Ferrigno's no actor, uh, but it's definitely lots of fun if you can plant your tongue firmly in your cheek. And there is a disc out there, for those of you who aren't you know, particular, like I've got to have it on Blu-ray or whatever, that has both Hercules films on the same disc. Um so I would I would recommend it for people that have a similar sense of humor. Let's put it that way. Uh, anything you want to mention about these before I move on? Yeah, you're out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're not one. I, I know, I know, I I know. Lou is not listening to this podcast, ah, but uh, <laughs> I was so disappointed when I saw these in the theater. Uh, well, the first one. I, no, I was, because, you know, I know Luigi Cozy is, and, you know, Louis Coates, like, duh. And Lou Ferrigno, we knew who Lou Ferrigno was. And the minute I saw this bad, bad uh, <laughs> tabletop miniatures, you know, like when Lou's yes. in the water, he's doing the mountain thing, which is straight out <laughs> of the Harryhausen. It's a Harryhausen riff. Oh, yeah. And, but not done as well as Harryhausen. Of course not. And, and it's, like, so <laughs> bad. You can say these things are not matched up right. And then you know, there's <laughs> stars and space involved because yeah, Luigi's a big sci-fi guy. Yeah. So why is he doing Hercules? You know, Star Crash, which is not a canon film. Star Crash, or you know, whatever you want to call it, Caroline Monroe, is much more fun. It's incredibly cheesy, but um, it, it's more watchable than this. I, I, thought, I thought both these things were like I. <laughs> um, and Sybil Danning, who seems to be ageless, who still is, uh, she's she's great eye candy in this. Uh, but yeah, you know, you got Brad Harris and all these guys showing up, William Berger. Um, if it was a better movie, it would be remembered much more fondly. Uh, I just think both of them like shit. So 
you just don't have an appreciation for trash film because this is the ultimate trash candy gloss film. No, seriously, because this is like when you're a five-year-old and you say, yeah, I'm going to put Hercules in a movie and he's going to do this. And then we're going to have these cool effects with lasers. And, and this this is what Coatsy's <laughs> films are like. The guy, uh, he never grew up. What are you going to say? I mean, he, early on he did like one or two Jollo sort of things that were actually surprisingly not bad. Uh, like the killer must kill again, but after this, all it was was these really bad but fun sci-fi films. And trust me, Star Crash is the tip of the iceberg. If you do get a kick out of Star Crash, or even if you can't sit through Star Crash because it's too boring for you with all Star Wars stuff, you know Hercules films are <laughs> they're very Lovely. '80s. Let's put it that way. Uh, very classic Titans. <laughs> uh, so then we move on to another one of the ninja films. So okay, right, well, the one first one went so well. Let's go to Revenge of the Ninja. Uh, so now we've got Chokasugi, who was the only guy that actually knew anything in the first film, uh, starring again. And he starts now. He's got a little bit of um, I don't want to say cash it, but he's, he's got a little bit of power. So what does he start doing now? Every time he's going to bring his son Kane in. Kane is about five years old. So you've got this little Japanese kid and this guy who is basically always an extra or a baddie in films like The Octagon and films like Enter the Ninja uh, with heavily cold eyebrows. I mean, if for a guy, he looks like freaking Susie Sue. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh and he comes in and he does this in this film here. Supposedly his family you know, is like a, he's a ninja family, and they all got killed off. And the old lady's like, I don't know if it's his grandmother or housekeeper or what, but she's like, Oh, you must leave, go to America, so they don't kill us and get all our secrets, which is insane. But okay, fine. So because you know, a rival ninja school is trying to wipe each other out. So he comes to America. He moves to this slum in the middle of Chicago uh, and says, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to, how about cheesy and, Where you know, we uh, know Japanese are welcome. Yeah. Yes, right. This, this cheesy, like, Fu Manchu <laughs> thing of, like, what are Japanese like? Well, they like origami and they like making dolls, like those little, you know, kabuki dolls. So that's what he does. He comes over to open up a fucking doll shop in the middle of a Chicago slum. Uh, and of course, what happens in there is uh, whoever is you know the business partner or whatever is bringing dope over and putting them in the dolls. So all of a sudden, it becomes this thing where he gets involved with the mob and they're threatening his family. And it gets into canon film territory. And canon films, this is where you really start seeing the explosions and the body count and the ultraviolence. And yet it's all in a day-glow 80s television, 18 meets the master, meets the equalizer, meets Magnum P.I., sort of, you know, ridiculous candy floss. If you take this seriously, you've got mental problems, kind of a, a veneer, if you will. Uh, and, they, and they tie it off with a bow that's like made of, you know, Limburger cheese. And that's the canon film. And that's what you're getting here. Um you know, you, there are points to which you can say, oh, yeah, this is kind of dark, and his films would certainly get darker, like Pray for Death later on. Uh, but, you know, it, it's really hard to take ninja films seriously, especially the Shokasugi ninja films. There will be a much better one coming up, or a much worse one, depending on how you look at it. But that's basically all i got to say about this one. Uh, if you do enjoy this sort of thing, definitely go out and check this one out. Uh, how about you? What do you want to say about this one? Oh, it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, it's a good one. It's it's fun and it's uh, 
got your requisite amount of violence in it. It's it's well photographed, and uh, I think it too recently came out. Oh no, it's Pray for Death. I'm sorry, but it'll well, be out like soon. It's definitely out on is disc. It? Uh, yeah, and if it's not legit, like I think it is, I thought it was on one of those sets with a couple other who knows what ninja movies or action movies, then it is definitely out on one of those uh, MOD birds from Warner. But I thought that was Pray for Death that was that way. I'm almost positive it's on a press disc. Well, uh, Pray, Pray for set. Death is coming out via Arrow of all people. Yeah, but what I forgot to mention, I mentioned about Kane Kasugi, his son that's like five, is this kid will actually be there because he taught him martial arts. So he's there doing like flying kicks and shit, this little five-year-old kid. I mean, it's not really impressive and like, oh, wow, that was cool. It's more of like, this is insane, and it makes it even funnier. Uh, and I know at one point, I don't know if it was this movie or another one, the kid is like flirting with an older, uh, like a, a teacher, basically. I don't remember if she was a martial arts instructor or if she was just a babysitter or what. And it's like, she was actually looking to him at one point, the, the baddie's breaking, and she's looking to this kid to go and help defend her. <laughs> I mean, it's that kind of a movie. I'm like, what the hell? You, if you... You totally have to suspend any measure of logic, taste, or, you know, um, I don't know what you want to call it, decorum. Uh, leave your brain at the door and just come in and have fun. That's what these kind of films are. Um, so pretty. they did a couple of films that, you know, nobody really cares about. The Wicked Lady. I don't know. Scorpion released that. I don't know why. Uh, and nobody bought it, including myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know why they released that what? piece of shit. Um, but, but, they put, but you're not going to skip over the Brooklyn Bridge, are you? Well, yes, I was. So what do you want to say about that one? <laughs> what a Brooklyn Bridge well, is the most, that I was going to skip. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most bizarre times they ever had in movie theater. Not the most, but one of them. It's Elliot Gould, who's a slubby Jewish guy. Yes, he was. he's good. And an angry slubby Jewish guy. (laughs) He was always pissed off. This movie, I think actually Menachem Golden directed it. He played a slubby Jewish guy who breaks up with his fiance. So he he goes over the Brooklyn Bridge and he, he moves into this apartment. He's trying to, like, he leaves his mom. I think Lainey Kazan, yes, Lainey Kazan, who at this point was beyond Softic, playing <laughs> his mother. And, which is funny, because when Lainey Kazan, she was like a chanteuse. She was a jazz singer. Yeah. And she was, like, really hot at some point, and something happened. If you like big Zaftig women. <laughs> yeah, right. So, anyway, she played his mother. And, and, and so, Elliot, was at this point, Elliot's getting to be middle-aged. So I was like, why? Yeah. All right, whatever. And Carol Kane, of all people. <laughs> wow. This casket's Carol Kane is his... Wait. Marty Feldman, Bernard Peters? What's he going to throw in here? <laughs> Carol <laughs> Kane <laughs> is, is the girl next door, in the apartment next door he's interested in. She's the school teacher, Right. Right. Wants to be a librarian, but she's also a dom. She's the dominatrix. Wow. <laughs> and so, like, she comes in, and she and she thinks that he wants to go that way. And somehow they make her look very attractive. Don't do does that. she have the squeaky voice when she does it? You know that Carol Kane voice. <laughs> yeah, she does. It's very strange. It's a very bizarre movie, and I, I'm not sure what Menachem Golden was trying to get at with this one, but. Uh, 
Bull did some good films. Uh, what was the one he did that was the? Um, it was sort of a Philip Marlowe uh, knockoff. Oh, long goodbye. Long, long goodbye. goodbye. Uh, Boston is one of my favorites. I love that one. But yeah, good you know, cop picture. Yeah. He's and, and he was in silly stuff too. Like um, what's the one oh, with uh, Sonny Bono and? Well, yeah, but Sonny Bono, um, Roger Moore, Telly Savalas, uh, what was it, Escape to Athena. I mean, silly oh. films he was in, but I always liked him. Uh, the trick is that, you know, like you said, once he started getting a little older, the bitterness came out more. He was always kind of angry, like I mentioned, but he really – it became like – uh, beyond Alan Arkin, kind of angry. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God. Uh, yeah, he was also Mister uh, Barbara Streisand at one point, which may be why he was so angry. <laughs> but <laughs> he was, and you know, he did a couple of weird Euro movies too uh, with uh, his buddy uh, Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. At, at some at some point, they were doing a lot of movies together, and he did this weird Euro spy thing called Spies. Yeah, and play deck shape. Yeah, yeah, Mumu, who was like the, the, the <laughs> chick of the moment, the French chick of the moment, was in that. And Playdex Chabelle, who was the bad guy in Thunderball, and of course the bad guy in The, the Apple, which, which we discussed earlier, right? Um, was the bad guy in Spies, <laughs> which was like a really weird movie, because it was directed by Irvin Kirshner, who did like a man called horse, so you think you could get a movie with Gravitas, instead you get this weird movie about guys who look like they're on drugs <laughs> in France <laughs> hanging out with cute skinny French chicks you know like dodging <laughs> spies very strange but you know again I did really like Elliot Gould during a certain period but this was past that period so God knows what he was doing um, so then we come Breaking. to uh, well no they did distribute House of the Long Shadows which you mentioned during Pete Walker show and then, like you said, Breakin' and Breakin' 2, which were surprisingly enough filmed on top of each other. I mean, uh, the one was, I don't know if it was filmed or distributed, in, in May of 84, and the other one came out in December. I was like, wow, that was fast. Yeah. Um, it was a very brief uh, craze. Not that people weren't breakdancing a lot. I remember all the B-Boys and a lot of crap. I actually knew somebody that did it, and it, we, we laughed about it all the time because he was uh, – all right, he's kind of dumpy, and he's like a white guy, and his code name. He told us recently because we didn't know that he was a B boy until recently. And he says, "Oh yeah, when I when I was doing this stuff, you know, I, I was spook." I'm like, "What? What's your name?" <laughs> yeah, he was spook. I'm like, "Wow." Uh, I I don't think he even realizes why that was funny, but I was like, "Wow." <laughs> That's all I can say. But, you know, Shabadoo and uh, who was the other guy that was in the breaking films? Uh, the, the two guys that were in there uh, were very popular for a little while because of these films. Um, Lucinda Dickey, who would show up on a lot of stuff, and if I'm not mistaken, she would show up in a fantastic or horrible ninja film very shortly after, which we'll get to. Um, yeah. Was in this as the you know the cute girl that was basically into dancing and jazz dance or whatever the hell. Uh, oh, here we go. Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp was the other guy. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know what? You know what? Though? These are these are two good look and the oh yeah, the, they're very stylish. The pacing, very yeah, pacing's very good. Stylish. The, the music isn't that fucking annoying. <laughs> it could be what it is. The pacing <laughs> is good. No, the pacing is good. Uh, Camera movements. Um, you don't mind the cast so much, and you know, if you're born in the urban 
Well, I lived in an urban area around this time period, so it's not entirely alien to you. Then, then you 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 get a kick out of it. I think it's fun. Yeah. Well, the first one had a serious undertone, though, because remember he had that whole thing yeah. where he wanted to be—I guess he wanted to be a DJ, okay. but he was also a tagger, and he went out there and he had to go and fight this one guy to tag this area on the subway, and they hit the third rail while they're fighting and electrocuted themselves, and I'm like, whoa, what the hell you is remember this? Remember tagging? Tagging was a big thing around this time period oh, yeah. too. I just saw a truck driving today, a panel truck, and it was totally tagged. I'm like, whoa, nice gang area, but. <laughs> but yeah. you know, it's still around. It's just it was a big deal at the time, just like the break dancing and you know the b boys and whatever the hell else, popping and locking and you know spinning on your head and whatever the hell else. Um, <laughs> but they were ridiculous fun movies, and they inspired, believe it or not, other urban movies of their type. And we went from sort of the serious or more serious uh, urban action stuff like the black exploitation films we discussed a couple shows back to this kind of silly. Beat Street, um, what, what the hell, you know, not even, well, Disorder was just kind of one, too, in a way, with the Fat Boys, but uh, there was a whole bunch of these shitty movies around this time. Uh, I think there was one called Rappin', which I think Cannon uh, also put yeah. out. Uh, and you would get people that were up and coming at the time, you know, like The Treacherous Three with Cole D was in one of these guys. Uh, but, you know, it's just ridiculous, ridiculous movies, and very, very of their time. Uh, and the whole thing, as I remember, I think it was Breaking 2, was they were trying to save like a dance center that was getting torn down so that they could put on a contest. I'm like, really? That's it? Uh, <laughs> it was so well, stupid. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> from here, oh, you get another routine sex comedy, Making the Grade, which I remember having. I think that was uh, Scott Bale, wasn't it? I forget. Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. all over the place at some point. The early days of uh, cable TV, it was like everywhere. Yep. Uh, it wasn't as funny as Zapped, but it was. Yeah, it was all over the damn place. Uh, so then they do a weird one, which was they bring Roger Moore in to put him as a schlumpy middle-aged shrink who is getting stalked in a sort of almost Hitchcock-esque, but not as good as the Palma. Um, that sort of a thing with Rod Steiger in it, Elliot Gould's in it, Art Carney's in it, and if I'm not mistaken, I didn't see it here in the cast, but I thought that uh, Walken was in it in a bit part. Uh, it, it's just a strange friggin' movie. Um, it's moody, you know, if you're into this sort of the Palma esque, you know, Hitchcock sort of knockoff. Uh, it's definitely watchable. Um, is it a good movie? Uh, I don't know about that. And it's a really strange choice to put as many names and uh, whatever as, as is in this, um, especially somebody like Roger Moore, who had just very recently stopped doing Bond films. This was right after View to a Kill. Uh, so why he would decide to do this film, I have no idea. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's obvious. It's obvious. It's uh I think that uh, you know he wants he's been desperate for a long time to break out of the uh, you know he did things while he was doing Bond like Folks the movie we, you mentioned before yeah. you know he would uh, escape to Athena so he 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 was desperate to break out of that mold I hate to say that but you know it's what else can I come up with and I think when they presented this to him he said well let me look at it. And he probably said, you know, this is a little different. It probably he probably thought it was going to be something, maybe, 
uh, better. Akin to The Man from Hawking himself, which was a very good Roger Moore movie. But it was like 1969, right after The Persuaders. Yep. And uh, he probably thought, oh, maybe this is going to be good like that. And um, then Cannon probably said, oh, my God, we don't have much money left. So who are we going to hire? <laughs> so that's why you got Arcani, Rod Steiger. Y'all, come on, Rod, Rod Steiger coming in with that big, loud, you know, this is what we can look forward to when Christopher Walken gets older. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I was wrong about Walken because I just realized it, it was I saw it around the same time so they both got released at the same time recently. And they're very similar films as The Last Embrace, which I think uh who the hell was in that? Was that Steiger? It's uh somebody else in that damn thing. Um uh, and that's the one. Oh, Scheider. Scheider, right. Because he was like an ex spy or some crap. But same idea, that's but that film was better. Very, that's a very that but mm-hmm. same idea. Um, so then they do, I believe, after that, they go right to sort of the Valiant. Don't, don't you see that, though? As, as our hero, Christopher Walken, gets older, he's going to turn to Rod Steiger. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> um, sort of the Valiant, which was a version of Gwen and the Green Knight with Sean Connery in it. Peter Cushing's in it. Ronald Lacey's in it. Uh, John Reese davies who I remember always from Shogun. I mean, this is an interesting British cast, and they got, for some reason, Miles O'Keefe as the lead. God knows why. Um, but it's well, a my, fantasy. My yeah. It's a fantasy yeah. tale based on the Arthurian mythos, and you really are expecting it to be better. You're rooting for it to be better, and it's uh, sort of the value. <laughs> uh, but go ahead. What do you want to say about Miles O'Keefe? Well, Miles my, my O'Keefe had did some stuff in, the, in Italy. Uh, uh, Iron Master. Um, oh, yeah, that was two. bad. That was bad. Oh. Yes, bad, bad. And actually, I think we kind of brushed on those months ago. Um, I think around the same time period, maybe, before or after. And so, you know, he was a big guy. He was built. He looked like a male yeah. model. He was a lump of wood. You yeah, know, he was Bob the uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, my kids. Yeah, it's good. It's Fabio. Um, <laughs> I see Fabio doing commercials now. I'm like, what? Um, he's back after we can't believe it's not butter and all that crap, and he's writing romance novels supposedly. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw him doing a commercial the other day, and he's singing just like he used to, belting out this. Tune. He's singing. Wow, we we I'm talked like, about Fabio after dark on another show. You, should, you guys should go back and listen to that. <laughs> yeah, very strange. I'm like, wow, it's weird. Um, yeah, I I have nothing to say about this. It was very disappointing. Yeah. Not that I expected it was. anything. <laughs> well, no, I did at the time. I was like, okay, you know, it's it's got a decent cast in it. You know, it's it's King Arthur. I love all that shit. And was, let's see, it's a canon film. Uh, it kind of doesn't work. Um, so Bolero they put out after this, which was another weird one. Like, what the hell? You know, Bo Derek was hot a couple of years before for 10. And I don't think she really did much after. I think she was in like a Tarzan movie or something, a Greystoke or something. Uh, and then here she is doing this stupid friggin' story. Uh, once again, directed and written by John Derek with George Kennedy's in it, Olivia Diabo's in it, who was in uh, Conan the Destroyer, and Andrea Occipinti from, uh, what was it, Fulci's Conquest. I mean, like, what a strange cast. And basically, it's 
you know what they were trying to do uh, at the time? I mean, not at the time because it was kind of old already, but in the 70s, a really big thing was Erica Young's Joy of Flying uh, or Fear of Flying. And that's what this kind of was. It was a bad, not sanitized, but almost, you know, it was like an 80s version of Fear of Flying. I'm like, but Fear Fear of Flying, The Happy Hooker, those were very popular books back in the day. Yeah, but but Fear of Flying, okay, it it was a decent book for what it was, and it it was kind of a a big thing for the feminist movement. Uh, Yeah, I have respect for Erica Young. I really liked her poetry. Um, She was kind of like a cross between E.E. Cummings and Adrian Rich. Uh, But, you know, here you get this movie, and it's like... Really? Bo Derek? I don't know about this. <laughs> it just doesn't but fucking the work. Is, the thing that always amazed me about Bolero was that... Uh, I think I saw it twice. So, you know... But it was like, it's so obvious. Like You know, like, it's really obvious that like, people are fucking and they try to make it a softball movie? Yep. And, 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 and like, so how did this thing get released? I, I Well, I did not see this in the theater... So right. you know I'm not that bad, but it, it went <laughs> straight so, to so video, didn't it? Yeah, but no, I probably go uh, theatrical. I'm sure. But when I saw it on VHS, I was like, "Well, these people are fucking because like he looks like he's fucking her," and I'm like, "So I I don't care one way or the other." You know, it's very, you know, right. John Derrick was very good at photographing. Oh, there. <laughs> Derek, yes. He was very good at people fucking his wife and photographing it. Um, <laughs> how Franco well, the, Yeah, how Franco... <laughs> day, there you go. Yeah, you're good tonight. Um, <laughs> but that's true, right? Yeah, Lita Romaine. Uh, no, John Derek had a really good camera eye. He wasn't a good director, per se. No. But lush, romantic, soaked in humidity, wet pussy fucking scenes when they're not supposed to be hardcore... He was really good at that. <laughs> and you know, it's funny thing about sorry. It's, it's a funny thing about Bolero. Maybe it's, it's like, please, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. But no no, when you watch like Bolero, well Ten is different. Ten is different. Yeah, you know, it's a Blake Edwards movie and Yeah, that's more of a comedy, I, I guess. We should do a show on Blake Edwards because I have no idea what that guy's story. That's not it was good, Lord Victor Victoria alone. <laughs> but, yeah. Anyway, the Pink um, movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. We should do Pink. I love the Pink Panther. Anyway, uh, but Bolero was like the culmination of sleazy Bo Derek movies. <laughs> Almost like Matt. What's the other guy? Matt Simber, with the with the the very unusual looking woman. What was it? Which one are you thinking? I, I know Matt Simber films, but... Matt, uh, wasn't his name Matt Simber? He had the really pouty lip girl. She was on Butterfly. Oh, Piazzadora. You're right. That was a Matt yeah. Simber job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Matt Simber did was... pornos, too. So I'm like, I don't know. What are you talking about? He did, like, horror films? He's like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt Simber. Yeah, Piazzadora. She was, she was like... Butterfly. It, uh, yeah, that was a Butterfly. strange one. I was at a tender age and, when I saw that. I'm like, whoa, look at this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's along the lines of that. But just think of, like, you get really close in those movies with Pia, and then she tried to be a singer. And yes. then, then you got... <laughs> then, <laughs> you like the emphasis on that, right? But then you got both Derek and Bolero. Both Derek already has caught with Ted, and she did the Playboy Centerfold. 
And okay, and then, you know, John Derrick convinced Cannon I'm going to make an epic film. And I think the first co-star had herpes, which is Fabio Testi, and they fired him. <laughs> What's the big thing? It's not like a big secret. <laughs> and I wonder if he got herpes from her. God knows. And, um, but they were kind of visible herpes. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, like uh, Anuj Gurin in that. Uh, which one of those uh, Joe D'Amato uh, zombie films was it? That, um, you know those two. Uh, one was Erotic Nights of Living Dead, and the other one was even sleazier. Uh, with the guy with the big oh, penis, yeah. and that was the the oh, zombie. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one yeah, I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah. Wow, well, she has some visible warts there. Totally. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, and 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 you know, it's it's, it's like no matter how they could have edited this thing, you know, I was like, well, yeah, they're doing it, so what? I don't care because it's a bad movie. And poor George Kennedy, <laughs> you know, poor George Kennedy. At least he gets oh, it come on. George Kennedy was used to this kind of crap. Not only was he later starring in a bunch of Nico Mastarakis films, but before this, uh, he was in Airport, was it 79? It was the one with Eric Estrada and um, the French fella. I can't remember. And he took him, I mean, it was Alain Delon. Oh, took him out. To, he's oh like, okay, God. I'm going to find you a girl. I'm going to find you out. I'm going to find you a girl. I'm going to make everything right for you because you're, you're all depressed. And it turns out all he did was buy him a night with a hooker. And then Kennedy like slaps on the back. Like, ah, thanks. That was a good job. I mean, the, the, George Kennedy was in some really funny freaking movies. Uh, so what are you saying yeah. about you met Aunt Wanda Long? Oh, I love the Wanda Long. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I thought you said you met him. <laughs> no, 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 no. I didn't meet him. I love, I love the Wanda Long. But what were you going to so say was George Kennedy being a Bolero? <laughs> <laughs> and remember, if those of you who have never seen George Kennedy, he's an old, fat, I guess, Irish drunk. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's like, pretty mean. It's pretty he's mean. Enormous, like, oh, beyond, beyond me, like, crisis belly. <laughs> the dirty dozen. No, you can't say that. Oh, that's mean, man. Uh, no, but you know, Nico no. Mastarakis said to me, like, "Look, George Kennedy he was always drunk, but he always hit his marks and he always knew his lines." Unlike some other people he worked with who were drug addicts that had some issues. And worth checking out that interview, which is hilarious. Uh, my third eye interview with Nico Mastarakis. Uh, love his movies. <laughs> All, right. All right, we should leave this one and go on to the next picture. <laughs> so. Well, actually, next comes another great one, one of these all-time like great canon films. Okay, there was a film called The Exterminator, and it was a typical, decent, you know, vigilante film that really captured the New York City of its era. Right, um, one of the best. I mean, if you want to see films that really capture New York as it was at that time, the three that I always think of, they may not be the best of all. There may be other ones that you can name off the top of your head, but was Vigilante from Lustig. Maniac from Lustig, and Exterminator, the original one. Uh, really, really, I don't want to say good films, but they definitely felt like the way New York was during that era. Sleazy, yeah. dirty, dangerous, uh, just like almost like a garbage dump. You know, that, that kind of a feel of dirt when you walked in there all the time. Um, sort of like what I was discussing earlier. Yeah, the, those Lustig, uh, Vigilante, yeah, especially. Yep. So... Out of this, you figure, okay, well, what could there possibly be a sequel to this film, The Exterminator? Because, you know, it's about this guy, he's a Vietnam vet, and he comes back, and I think his buddy got, like, his leg blown off or some crap. There's a whole thing where he became a vigilante film, and he went and took care of shit with a, um, if I'm not mistaken, with a flamethrower, right? That was his big weapon. Okay, fine. 
So comes around and said, let's make a sequel to this. So they make now the same character, Robert Ginty, who was this, again, sort of a dumpy, innocuous guy that you would think would be, I don't know, making SOV films or something. He's just like a strange, uh, like a next-door neighbor that was too weird and you didn't want your kids anywhere near him. That kind of a guy. Uh, always walking around like... You know, the, the sloppy khaki jacket, like, you know, he's like an ex-Vietnam vet, but, you know, he was, I mean, the, the kind of guy you see normally, you know, he was never in Nam. He was just like a sloppy guy. Uh, you know, here he is putting on the paunch, and what does he do? He gets a job driving a fucking garbage truck, right? So him and his buddy, the garbage truck uh, driver, you know, they become good friends. And this our hero, the garbage man, goes and romances this girl who thinks she's going to be a dancer, like a ballet dancer. Oh, yes, I'm serious. You know, Sandal Bergman and all that jazz or some crap, right? It turns out she's a low-rent stripper because they go to see her at this bar. She's there. Nobody's paying attention. It's like a dive bar. They've got the pole in the middle of the floor with about, you know, maybe five-foot square of tiles, and that's where she's kind of writhing around really poorly. There's nothing sexual about it. She's not a good dancer. Uh, but, you know, she's got this dream that she's going to be a dancer. Okay, so they fall in love. They go out there. They get ice cream in the park and all this crap. And some thugs, the 80s thugs come along, give them shit, and end up doing something that, unfortunately, cripples her, which is never a pleasant thing to see, especially, you know, whatever. So, okay, so now he's got to get revenge. So how does he get revenge? Uh, and mind you, I didn't even mention, Mel, uh, Melvin Van Peebles' son, Mario, the one that he gave herpes by having him fuck the hooker in uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass song uh, as a kid, He he's in here as, like, it looks like the cast of Breaking 2 got out. And these are the thugs there you're supposed to be scared of, you know, the drug dealers or whatever the hell. Uh, so how does Ginty go and get his revenge? Well, he's a garbage man, right? So why don't I go and put – I think he had like his shovel on the front. You know, like they had like a scoop, like he'd throw up and stuff in the back of the hopper or whatever. So he puts it – and he bends it outward like it's a tank almost, you know, like a, almost like a gold-plated uh, garbage shovel. And he will use this thing as an offensive weapon. So he goes and runs through the wall of the, the gang's hideout. It's like a factory. And, of course, goes out there and starts shooting them. And at one point, they give him a flamethrower just as homage to the first film. And, you know, he, I guess he sort of gets his revenge, even though his girlfriend's still crippled and can't be a dancer anymore. And she's so bad. She's, like, whining through the whole thing. I'll never be a dancer. Oh, my God. It is the funniest Worst vigilante film, but therefore the best that you're ever going to see. Loads of fun. These are the kind of films that, if you love canon films, this is why. And if you hate them, this is why. Uh, that's all I got to say on this one. It, it's just my summation is garbage man goes crazy. That, that's, that's what this movie's about. <laughs> uh, uh, Making it sound like a buddy Giovanazzo movie. No, um. <laughs> Uh, you know what I liked about this? You know who was in it? He played his ex nam buddy was Steve James. Oh, Steve James is great. Yeah. Steve James is great and uh, was great. And um, yes, Cannon, I think, recognized that Steve James was magnetic and he had a natural. He was like, think of think of a younger, savvy, street smart Fred Williamson, but like yes. nicer. Nicer. He's a nicer guy. Yeah. yeah. And. I think where you're going, I'll I'll jump in because I think this is where you're going to go. They actually sort of started a film series around him, which technically becomes the career of Michael Dudikoff, which was the American Ninja films later. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I wasn't going to go there yet, but 
But we, we, we'll, we'll hit that later. But Steve James was such a nice guy. They even yeah. they threw him in things like, you know, uh, the, the Delta Force and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They knew Steve James was a property. Um, actually, Steve James was the first guy that ever wrote me a fucking fan letter. Really? I had it's no idea. True. I you guys show me sometime. Time. I love Steve James. I, I mean, unfortunately, he yeah. passed away. For those who don't know, but uh, at a young yeah, age. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he wrote a lot of things. Yeah, Blood Times magazine, which was the fanzine I had. Yeah. Yeah, like you know, all the fanzine guys are writing back and forth. I'll trade you mine for yours. Okay. Uh. And I got this letter in the mail from a guy in New York City. Hi, my name is Steve James. I'm an actor. I really like your magazine. Uh, and then he went into great length about some of the stuff I wrote about, which was like crap movies. Yeah. It's like, how do we subscribe? Here's $10. <laughs> I thought that was so cool. Wow. Yeah, you know, I was like, wow, my first fan letter. And it's from like somebody I've seen on, on TV. You got to show me if got you got it. Because I love yeah, this guy. I, I mean, the American Ninja films, this... Uh, he wound up in one or two uh, Donna Dragon Wilson films when he was doing stuff with Corman. Uh, alongside Kat Sassoon, who I also loved, another uh, late uh, actress. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, through no fault of his own, you know, it wasn't like he overused on drugs or something. He, he got like some kind of pancreatic cancer or some crap and died at a very cancer, young age. Yeah, yeah very young he age. He died quickly, too. Yeah. <laughs> But he was a good guy. Uh, you can tell. And, and the fact that you mentioned this even makes it more cemented. Uh, you can just see the way he is on screen in all his roles. He's just uh, – it's a loss. You know? He was a good person. It's, yeah, well, you think of like – so a guy who's an actor in canon films walks mm-hmm. into a bookstore on the Lower East Side, picks up a bunch of fancies, and then actually takes the time to write me that says me 10 bucks. Come on. Yeah, that's like, and wow. I understand from his ex-wife, I'd read something she wrote about him, and he used to take his time encouraging people. He'd go around to like local acting schools, and if he wasn't like physically teaching a class or something, you know, like volunteering, he would go and give these kids pointers and encouragement. Like, oh, yeah, you're doing a good job. Here, try this out. And, really? So, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that the good dude died young and shitheads hang out forever, but that's another story. Uh, yeah, yeah. So all respect to Steve James, and we'll get to some more of his films shortly. So anything else you want to say about Exterminator 2 before I move on? No, I think we're we're good. All right. So now we get to what is probably the greatest of all ninja films. And I say that with tongue planted firmly in cheek. Uh, When I saw this, I rented this from uh, Video Shack. With my father. My father also loved all these kind of crap movies, and we would rent this stuff all the time together. Um, and we picked this fucking thing up, and neither one of us could believe it after seeing it. And I'm talking about we had already seen, you know, The Octagon. We'd already seen Enter the Ninja. We'd already seen Revenge of the Ninja and liked all this stuff. Okay, yeah, here's another ninja film. What the fuck was that all about? <laughs> okay. This is it. It was in the Dickie, who was in the Breaking films. Now grows her hair out some more. James Hong, who was a regular, you know, Asian baddie, all purpose. You know, sometimes they use him as Korean, like in that uh, the Perfect Weapon. Sometimes they use him as Chinese, which he was. Sometimes they use him as Japanese. Yeah. Oh, he did porn, really? Wow. Yeah, you don't know. China no. Girl. China. Ah. Who would want to huh? see James Hong naked? That's what I want to know. No, 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 no. He wasn't naked. He he actually directed some of these things too. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. Another story, I, but go I, ahead. I don't know what to say about that. We'll talk about it some other time. Uh, definitely talk about that off air. But, yes, yeah, so James Hong was kind of like the all-purpose baddie, and he would pop up in these things all the yeah, time. Yeah, Big Trouble. Big Trouble. Yeah, what was the one that the Fasano did? You know, the fellow that did stuff like Black Roses and uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare. Oh, uh, the, the Shivers, the Reapers. It was like a one set in uh, Chinatown. The guy had a Chinese girlfriend, and they opened up a store, and oh, they were like hopping vampires. Was it Vineyard? Was it? No, no. I I, the Jitters. That was it. I love that film. Jitters. Uh, Jitters. Yes, yes. So, yeah, he's in yeah. that. Uh, so, anyway, he pops up in this thing. Uh, Shokasugi's in it, but very briefly. So, it's really hard to summarize this film. It is beyond belief. It's probably the funniest ninja film you've ever seen in your life, and possibly one of the funniest films you're going to see in your life. Unintentionally, of course. To summarize this as quickly as I possibly can, basically there is a ninja who has a mission to kill some rich businessman while he's on the golf course in broad daylight. So he's there. Nobody notices this fucking ninja in the tree. He goes and kills him, and of course somehow everybody notices. The police come in, and I think the military comes in. I know they brought in helicopters and all kinds of crap, and this one lone ninja kills all these people off, takes down helicopters, takes down, you know, assault rifles, takes down cop cars, takes down, you know, like dozens and dozens of people die on this freaking golf course uh, by this heavily made up, cold, you know, Susie Sue looking ninja uh, and acting worse than usual because he really kind of overdid it for this role. Um, but he ends up getting killed at the end. But somehow, I forget exactly how it happened, but I think she came into possession of his sword. Somehow, this girl, who is basically, I forget whether she was still supposed to be a dancer or what, uh, comes into possession of something. She either looks in his eyes, or she takes his medallion, or she takes the sword. I don't remember what the exact conceit was. But she ends up getting possessed by the spirit of this dead, evil ninja uh, to get revenge on the people that took her out, uh, took him out, rather, which ends up being, you know, like cops and whatever the hell else. Okay. So she then gets involved, in the meantime, with this obnoxious, obnoxious Italian cop uh, who is the epitome of date rapey, <laughs> uh, you know, of its era. If somebody said a pickup line like this to you nowadays, they wouldn't just get, you know, slapped with a lawsuit. They would probably be, like, <laughs> arraigned. Um, you know, it, it's bad. So she winds up going and being supposedly in love with this guy, which means a lot of, like, sleazy pseudo-sex scenes in a very 80s backdrop, you know. I think she's got, like, video game machines and all this crap in her apartment, neon, you know, puffs of smoke come up and, like, green smoke. It's really totally over the top. And eventually they end up – I think they bring an exorcist or something to get this ninja spirit out of her before she can kill again because you know, obviously he's finding who's going and killing all these people off. And of course it's her because she's possessed by this ninja. It is unbelievable. It is the furthest thing from what you would expect of a kung fu movie or even a ninja film that you can possibly imagine. Uh, obviously, you know she's a dancer, you know, like a breaking dancer at that. She has no ability as a fighter. Uh, the whole conceit is just totally unbelievable and totally hilarious and totally canon. And it is very, very highly recommended as a what-the-fuck-drop-your-mouth kind of movie. <laughs> so what did you want to say about this one? No, no, you you touched on all the aspects, including uh, you mentioned the sex part. And it's funny, some of the stuff does veer into softball territory. Yes. And which is like having previously seen her break in, and then you're seeing. So, what was going on with that? Mm -hmm. um, 
It's a it's a very strange movie. It's got like possession, sex, <laughs> weird cop sex, um, kung fu, ninjas, possession, exorcism. It's a very strange movie. The thing is, though, she she's not the most attractive lead either. No, she's not bad looking, but she's not like yeah, she's, she's not, not super hot. Bad looking, looking, but it's like like yeah, but you have to think in movies like this. So, how did you get this part? <laughs> <laughs> this thing did get released theatrically. I remember this. I remember this. It's yeah, I think you did it, you described it really well. Yeah, it's 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 highly recommended for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah. So we're about yeah, more than halfway through their uh, run, so I'm going to try to pick it up a little bit if possible, and we'll see where we get to. Um, so next we get to the first of the missing in action films. So Chuck Norris, who has heretofore been Basically, a karate star. That's what he's known for. You know, he was in uh, Bruce Lee's uh, Return of the Dragon. Uh, he was on the karate circuit. He was in things like, you know, Scream in the Streets, a, a strange something weird film. Actually, in his karate school, teaching people how self defense in their early seventies. And then he started doing all these films like, you know, like I mentioned, The Force of One, The Octagon, uh, Good Guys Wear Black, even weird stuff like Silent Rage, which is a kind of slasher film. This is what he's known for. Here he is. Do you remember who they were for? Um, were they for TriStar Columbia? Wow, wow. I'm I'm not positive. It could have been MGM too. I, think you're I don't right. think so. I think you're but, right. Yeah. Um, so here he is, and he does. I think this was his first one, unless I missed one. Uh, up for Canon. And what does he decide to do? Well, Rambo was popular. Why don't I one-up Rambo by taking on the entire Vietnamese government? to go and free suspected POWs. It's missing in action. Uh, so Colonel James Braddock, James Hong's in it once again, of course, is the baddie. This film is, you know, even if you don't like Rambo, even if you hate the other missing in action films like I do, this one is priceless. Uh, just seeing him go in there and basically give this guy death threats at press conferences, you know, on, on television, and then you know he's he's like in a hotel and he's pretending he's like with this one girl who was I don't know what she was an age or somebody assigned to watch over him more or less, and he goes and climbs out on these um, like telephone wires, I guess, over a street, this heavily guarded hotel, you know, soldiers walking back and forth in these empty streets. Nobody ever noticed him. He's like climbing up gutters, going really slowly, mind you, you know, hopping on top of cars just so he can go and do things like, you know, I remember at one point he had to go and, you know, get a cache of weapons and just stupid shit to try and go and, like I said, take on the entire Vietnamese government to free a bunch of POWs. I don't even think he's successful in the first film, if I remember right, but it's just funny, funny shit. Like, wow, this is not only jingoist, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just beyond... There's way, nobody, no way anybody that has a brain in their head that has, like, you know, three working cells in it could sit there and go, oh, yeah, this is plausible. It's just so stupid and so funny. And yet, you know, it's Chuck Norris, so he's um, he's not the most dynamic of actors, but he's a likable guy. And, you know, here he is doing this like ridiculous Rambo knockoff, that one-up Rambo. And I'm talking about not even First Blood. I'm talking about Rambo, you know, part two. Uh, he one-upped that by, like, you know, I don't know what, a Missouri Mile. 
hilarious shit, and the other films only got worse. Uh, anything you want to say about that? <laughs> well, well, what do you say about Chuck Norris? Yeah, he's, he is a likable guy. I mean, he's, he's he was always very limited in his acting ability. Mm-hmm. I think we, at the outset, it's kind of like throughout their code of silence. You could say, I think somebody, one of us, mentioned that, which yeah. I think is his best movie. Andy Davis too. Andy Davis did Seagal's best picture, which is Seagal's first movie, whatever the hell that one was. Uh, above the law, yeah. So, uh, uh, it's not like Chuck Norris was without talent or uh, or something. You know, like I think he got better when he worked more with his brother Aaron. Aaron Norris wound up directing a lot of later canon films. Um, it's just that these early ones, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, posturing. Jingoistic, you know, and and some of it's ridiculous to watch. You know, like that scene you just described is in the movie, you know, where he's yeah. going hand over hand on this cable, like nobody's supposed to be seeing him, but he's going so slow. All you have to do is like, if it was real life, like what is that guy doing? Yeah, it's brightly lit, empty, wide streets with military people walking and driving back and forth all around, and nobody notices this guy in the middle of the street going really slowly, climbing across the wire. And I'm like, really? <laughs> How dense are the Vietnamese? <laughs> Come on. Uh, and it's, 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 it's enjoyable for what it is. I'll slightly disagree with you because this is around the time that Chuck's film started turning. I, mean, I love this film. And I love a couple of ones he yeah. did after this. But my period where I love his films was all the stuff that you hate where he was more of a wooden actor and a better fighter as opposed to the stuff that came later when he's doing like the Delta Force and all that and really starts getting you know, Walker, Texas Ranger. I can't even watch that crap. Uh, I thought he had more of you know not acting ability but more of his own persona and more colorful whatever and more like okay i'm going to put my like you know zen martial arts whatever into this as opposed to let me go and copy whatever trend is popular this week and you know show off some right wing politics which just gets kind of turgid after a while uh but missing in action is loads of fun and it's totally ridiculous so i do recommend that one um so then we have another uh, uh, teen sex comedy, basically. Hot Resort, which had Bronson Pinchot, if you remember him from, uh, what the hell was that, Bosom Buddies? Um, mm-hmm. And Frank Gorshin is in this. Frank Gorshin, who was the Riddler in Batman, and a great impressionist. Once he got into the 80s, he started doing strange things. He was playing sleazy parts. I, I remember one of my favorites was Hollywood Vice Squad, where he was uh, he was basically a high high level pimp. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Because someone's like, yeah, I got want to buy some pieces of art from you. He's like, hey, okay, Picasso, fuck art. I got the best young pussy you ever saw. I'm like, this is the Riddler. I'm like, you'll be kidding me. Funny, funny shit. So that's what he's doing here. Um, you know, but again, it's a, a teen sex comedy. It's kind of whatever. You get another missing in action film not long after the first one. It's basically not even a year. Uh, the problem is now things start getting bad because he decides to, well, we already did that story. What are we going to do now? Let's do a flashback. And here's when Braddock was in the POW camp. So half of this film is sort of a male version of a women in prison film. Uh, with touches of torture porn, uh, and it's just, I don't know, I really couldn't, I, I could not get into it at all. I won't say it was unwatchable, it was just, it sucked. 
definitely, with the missing action films, the first one is the best. I wouldn't even try the later ones. Um, you know, Company of Wolves came after this, which is a strange one. Neil Jordan, Angela Lansbury, David Warner. I mean, this is like, really? What's this doing from canon? Um, the CC Underground was also canon. Uh, Rappin, I mentioned earlier, uh, with Mario Van Peebles and Kadeem Hardison from A Different World. I mean, what? What is this crap doing here? But, you know, again, that was playing on the uh, the break-in films. Um, Life Force, which we will discuss in a couple of weeks when we talk Toby Hooper, but just suffice to say, Matilda May walking around naked and some sort of, not one-upping, but I enjoyed parts of it just as much as, if not better than Aliens, uh, or Alien, I should say, with the whole spaceship design. Uh, and, you know, London, it becomes very apocalyptic, but we will get to it in a future day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get to this movie because it's 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 one of the big WTF movies of all time. So, unless there's anything uh, you want to address with those four, uh, I'm going to go right yeah, into it. Yeah, go ahead, go. No, okay, American Ninja was, it started off a four-film series. Uh, Steve James is really the star. He's kind of the the acting uh, whatever of this. He's the heart and soul of it. Uh, and Dudikoff himself admits that, oh, yeah, Steve was always kind of coaching me because, you know, basically he was a model or something. I don't know if he was like a T-shirt model or underwear model or whatever the hell he was. Uh, and he came in and was thrown in this role. And he's like, yeah, you know, Steve James kind of was like really patient with me. He kind of taught me everything I knew uh, and still says this to this day. I think it's right there on the DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, somebody named Judy Aronson, who was a little whiny but kind of pretty uh, as the love interest. She's like the, the evil captain that's trying to screw him over. Uh, that's his daughter. And, of course, you know, at the end they get together. Uh, she, he actually saved her life from some whatever the hell. You know. um, basically what it is, the soldier's got kung fu skills. And even though he's kind of a grunt uh, and his mission that he's supposed to be on fails, uh, probably deliberately because it was kind of sabotaged. Uh, and he gets put upon, like, okay, now you got to be on KP duty. And Steve James becomes his buddy because, I don't know, maybe he, like, was just giving him shit because, like, okay, here's a new fish, and now he's in trouble, and I'm going to do whatever with you. And they got into this crazy-ass fist fight uh, involving, like, buckets of water and, you know, God knows what else. Uh, and all the guys are standing there yeah. cheering him on. Yeah. 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 And it's actually kind of funny and, and unbelievable in a weird, like, you know, guy film sort of a way. Uh, and of course, like my wife doesn't understand, once guys have a fist fight, if they have respect for each other, they usually end up becoming buddies. Yeah, okay, I'll buy you a drink, good one. Uh, and that's what happened here, and they become like fast friends after this. Um, yeah. So basically, he, you know, Steve James is like the bully. He gets his respect in this fight. He gets involved with the door of the general, like I mentioned, and he fights off mercenaries between, you know, basically being on KP duty through the whole film. So they find excuses to cover for him as he like jumps over the fence or takes his motorcycle and, you know, or actually Steve James' motorcycle and you know, goes out there and does whatever with the baddies. It's loads of fun. Um, I'd say that the first two films are loads of fun. After this, it gets a little more questionable, and we'll get to that as we go. Uh, is there anything you want to say about this one? No, no, you did good with that, yeah. So then we got Invasion USA, which is the oh, ultimate oh. hilarious jingoist film. Uh, you take the biggest excesses of what we've mentioned so far about Charlie Bronson, and you take the missing in action Chuck Norris and throw them into a blender, and you might have something half as crazy as Invasion USA. Um, Chuck Norris and Richard Lynch is in this as uh, – he's basically, you know, Chuck was supposed to be a CIA agent that like gave it up. And 
this guy is like some Russian, I don't know what, you know, former KGB agent or something. And now he's got crazy and decides that, you know, I want to take down the deck in America or whatever. Hell. So well, he's, he's trying to Cuban. Yeah, he's trying to blow up the entire freaking country. It's ridiculous. And just, you know, pulling random terror things. So, and, you know, Chuck is haunted because, you know, he almost had this guy, but he had to let him go or he did let him go or whatever. Now he regrets this. And, you know, basically he's a schlub. You know, he's not a CIA anymore. He's just some guy going around, like, staying in hotels and being a trucker or whatever the hell. But, you know, nonetheless, he knows he's the only guy that can stop him, even though everybody's against him. And you get some crazy-ass sequences with him. Like, I remember one where he was, like, hanging off the outside of a truck, like a tractor trailer. And I think the trailer's filled with explosives, and he ends up, like, taking it over, beats the guy up, he drives it off. And it's just insanity on, like, the highways. Uh, I'm not sure what there is to say about this film, except that... Basically, it is hilarious, jingoist paranoia, and insane action because, you know, God damn it, only Chuck Norris can save America. It's funny you mentioned that. People, people like, what was it, two years ago? There was like this plethora of Chuck Norris t shirts on Facebook. Like, yes, what is this shirt? It. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, getting back to this movie, you know, I, I don't know, man. It's insane. It's insane. Yes. Joe, Joe Zito, who's the director, Joe's Joseph Zito. Like, who the fuck is Joseph Zito? Yeah, that's why you mentioned. Yeah, he he used to do like uh, he used to work on on Golden Age stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. And so he he passed through the ranks of porn, and I guess he was probably you know probably assistant AD working on pictures. And uh, somehow he got this movie. The guy's good. I mean, the guy is definitely good. I mean, it's probably the best thing he ever did. Oh, it's effective um, for what it is. Yeah, it's effective, and it's also brutal. There, there are scenes with Richard Lynch and uh, who's it, Ron O'Neill, somebody like yeah. that. Somebody like that. As, as, uh, as, as uh, you know, the, the leader of the Cuban guys who kind of suspects that you know Richard Lynch is like a little over the top. And, like, these people are doing <laughs> cocaine, and they're using a straw, but they're using, like, a metal straw, and Richard Lynch just smacks them down, and the straw goes all the way into their brain. Like, oh, that's nasty. Yeah, and Richard um, Lynch is most over the top in this film, just like everybody else. I mean, the performances are hysterical. The tone of the film is hysterical. It's action-packed, and it's just, you know, if you take it seriously, I'm actually scared of you because it's that fucked up. But, you know, <laughs> it's the funniest goddamn thing you're ever going to see in your life. Like, wow, people actually put this out on celluloid. Great film in that respect. <laughs> yeah, for a picture, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a big body count. There's a lot of people in the cast. I mean, yep. you know, it's supposed to be an invasion of Florida. Um, and remember, you got Chuck Norris taking on Richard Lynch. Richard Lynch is a dissolute, um, you know, dissipated sort of, you know, he plays sinister really well, but you would never believe him in a fight. And, you know, Chuck Norris, of course, is a fighter. That's what he is. He's a bruiser. Even for his karate, he was kind of thick. And, you know, my father said, yeah, I can't see how Bruce Lee could beat him. Bruce was faster, obviously. But, you know, because he was such a... Uh, he would come in and overpower you, basically, with his fighting. And right. somehow they managed to make this fight look, I don't want to say believable, but it, it's acceptable. It's like, okay, you would never think that somebody little like Richard Lynch would go and be able to, quote, hold his own against somebody like Chuck Norris. And yet they make it look like, all right, you know, while you're watching it, it, it works. And that says a lot about the direction right there. So, Anything else you want to throw in this one? 
What can we say? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So then they do Hard Rock Zombies, which is one of the worst of the heavy metal horrors. It's not even heavy metal. It's uh, more like bad, sort of a Kiss type of a band. Um, Adventures of Hercules 2, we mentioned the Luigi Cosi one, uh, which, where this time he actually brings in Carla Ferrigno, who I think was his wife. Um, Death Wish 3, this is another, this is probably one of the last of the really, really funny canon films. Uh, it's definitely the funniest of the Death Wish films. Because Death Wish 2 still had that serious intro, like we had mentioned. This one is unbelievable. So now, okay, Kersey was in New York. He went out to L.A. So now they send him back to New York. And he gets recruited by a crooked uh, detective on the police force to fight street crime. Uh, apparently there's a gang going around terrorizing the neighborhoods, and the cops can't handle it. So they say, okay, let's bring this crazy vigilante in, and we're going to blackmail you into working for us. And that's the plot. There are some unbelievable performances in this. This is the most comic – I mean if you think – uh, Exterminator Two had some ridiculous street gangs. If you think that guy with his, you know, eyes popping out in Death Wish Two was funny, this is unbelievable. This gang here, and it includes of all people Alex Winter, who was, uh, I think it was like what was he, Bill uh, or Ted S. Preston Esquire from Bill and Ted, you know, uh, Raffin's in it, Martin Balsam's in the damn thing, uh, and of course Bronson. It is. <sighs> Death Wish 3 is probably the funniest film you're ever going to see in these kind of vigilante, you know, neocon, jingoist paranoia type things. Again, there's really no way you could take this stuff seriously. Canon films were known for this. They were so over the top that I, – I hate to say this because then those people are going to get upset, but it's almost like you know Don Trump being, being serious contender for president. It's like, really? Seriously? That's who you're going to go for? <laughs> it's just that far over the top and like – this has got to be a joke kind of a thing. That's what canon films are like. They are so funny and so ridiculous that you have to laugh. You have to enjoy them. Or, you know, if you hate them, then you just don't have a sense of humor, which I understand. Like, wow, these are detestable for whatever reasons, you know, political reasons or, you know, whatever. I, I don't like all the violence. I can't stand the whatever, the rapes that come out or whatever. But they're just so insane. You cannot believe what you're watching. And that's what makes these things great. Death Wish 3 has everything about that and more. Um, I just <laughs> I, I love this fucking film, is all I can say. Uh, anything you want to throw in on that one? Oh, no, it's good. So then they do – Canon decides that, okay, we're getting a little bit too hard on the neocon violent thing. Let's go and try to make a couple of like more kid-friendly, family-friendly films. So what do they do? First they do King Solomon's Minds, which was an H. Ryder Haggard novel, which is a good novel uh, of its period, from like the 1880s. Uh, jungle adventure sort of a thing. It was filmed, I believe, twice before, uh, the last one being in the 50s with, uh, I think, Stuart Granger in it. Uh, so yeah. bring in Jay Lee Thompson, who you mentioned earlier, and what do they do? They make it a weird comedy, and like an 80s-style comedy, like a Legal Eagles sort of a thing, that, that kind of a feel. Uh, Sharon Stone is in it, and don't be thinking your basic instinct. This is Sharon Stone trying to be like a bubble-headed bimbo, you know, like a, an 80s girl, like um, like, like Karen Allen in the yeah. – yeah, Cameron yeah. Allen in the, in the Indiana Jones films. It's like that sort of a thing. Like, really? It's kind of useless. Oh, yeah, wait. I want to be involved. It's, I'm paying for this expedition. Ah, help me. There's a, there's a snake on the ground. I mean, that kind of a thing. 
awful, awful funny movie. Uh, and they actually made a sequel to it, which was even worse. Uh, people like Herbert Lom is in this, John Rhys Davies again, uh, Richard Chamberlain, who had not just but recently come off Shogun. He was a you know the Thornbirds. He was a respected stage actor, and here he is doing crap like this. Uh, my wife saw it and she's like, "Why did you buy this? This is horrible." But you know, I saw it in the movies, <laughs> and I was like, you know, it was funny. It was, I, I got a kick out of it. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just hey, you, have, you have a remembrance of something and you think it's fun, and you buy the DVD and it turns out to be complete shit. Yes, <laughs> that's what happens. Like, I can't trust always. Like, sometimes when I see stuff that I never remember from when I was a kid, I'm like, I thought this was okay. I was like, wow, that was really great. I had good taste. And then other times I see stuff like this, I'm like, wow, I was like fucked up or something. What was going on? Because <laughs> it was so bad. Well, well, I, I will say this though. I thought Richard Chamberlain was surprisingly okay. Yeah, he was likable enough. Yeah. He was likable. I thought physically he was fine. I thought, you know, they were obviously going for that Indiana Jones thing a couple of yes. years too late. But by then, they had already released a second Indiana Jones movie. So I I, I I, think he was fine for the part. I think she was okay. You know, just, you know romancing the stones going on, too, around this yep. time period. That's also planned um, to this. I just think that making it too comedic really killed it. I yeah. think if they if if they went not not entirely serious, but if but if if somebody who did the script or the direction was able to measure the the, the combination thereof, yeah, you know, it might have done better. But yeah, the second one's worse. Oh my god! Oh, uh, the second one. Alan Quarterman is Lost City of Gold. Chamberlain Stone are in it again. This time they got James Earl Jones in it, which he should be totally embarrassed by this one. Uh, Henry Silva's in it, and freaking Elvira's in it, but you barely notice her. Horrible, horrible movie. I mean, it actually, if you like King Solomon's Minds, you still won't like this one. Uh, that That's how bad it is. Um, and strangely, this is the one that's on Blu-ray. It's actually, actually harder to get King Solomon's Minds than it is to get Lost City of Gold. I don't understand why. Um, so now we get the Delta Force, which you had mentioned before. It's probably the first you – know, this is the real jump-the-shark moment for Chuck Norris. After Invasion USA, that's kind of it for me. I really can't watch anything he did after this. This He's trying to be really serious, uh, and it is that story that you mentioned about the 707 going from Athens to Rome and then you know terrorists from Lebanon taking over and they take it to Beirut and all this crap. Um, big cast in it. Lee Marvin, Martin Balsam, Joey Bishop. Uh, George Kennedy again, Susan Strasberg, uh, Bo Svensson's in it, your buddy, Robert Vaughn, the football head from uh, <laughs> whatever the hell that stupid show was that I hate, uh, Shelley Winters, Steve James is in it. Uh, you would think like, wow, it's a really good cast. It should be a decent film. <laughs> wow, it's bad. And it's not even like canon bad where it's like, okay, this is loads of fun. It's turgid. It's serious. It's neocon. It feels like um, something that George W. Bush would have put to film, except that it was done, you know, maybe uh, 15 years earlier than he came around to the presidency. Anyway, that kind of thing, like ah, uh, and it's actually painful to watch in that respect too, because once you go into the light of things that happened, you know, later on and during the Bush presidency, you see in this like plane get hijacked, and I'm like, oh, this is painful. You know, it bothers you on several levels at this point in history. It bothered you on other levels before, but now it's like doubly painful. I really despise this film and its sequels. Uh, anything you want to say about it? 
Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have a better opinion than I do, which ain't hard to do. Uh, well, no, I mean, Lee Marvin's, everybody loves Lee Marvin. Uh, yeah. There's something going on with him, though, because he looked about 83, yes. and he was only 62 when he made this. And I did a little research, and Lee, Lee was, was suffering from uh, an illness. It wasn't cancer, believe it or not. It was something minor. And uh, shortly after he finished his picture, he went into the hospital and had this diagnosis fixed. And they screwed something up, and he actually went up dying because of, like, Ooh. Some, some bizarre thing. And he died in 63. Now, if you saw the Delta Force, Lee Marvin looked like he was 84 years old. He looked really bad. He looked older than his years. And I was amazed. And I'm thinking, my God, when he did the Dirty Dozen, how old was Lee Marvin? He must have been a very young man. <laughs> <laughs> Who just always looked young, uh, old. Um, yeah. Terry, you know, Lee Marvin's in the movie. you got to cut it. You know, I thought... You know, I normally can't stand Shelley Winters because she's always bitching, you know. And, yeah. And and you know, I thought it was okay. Robert Foster, I give him credit. He did a really fine job playing this Middle Eastern terrorist because without cracking up, uh, he did. He did. He, you know, he had to play the whole thing with an accent and virtually almost the whole thing in sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know everybody knows Robert Foster, you know medium cool Jackie Brown, and I I thought he made the movie rise above a little bit. Then he got really, it had some sadism in it, which was totally mm-hmm. uncalled for. I'm not quite sure what was going on. They took apart a seat and they beat one of the uh, American Navy men who was on holiday or just happened to be on the plane. Yep. With this seat arm. And I was like, the guy's bloody. Doesn't he eventually shot him in the head several times and threw him out the plane? Yep. It's like, so it's like, it's almost like kind of like, well, we're making this movie, but we have to throw a little extra scenes and show like, the brutality of the oppressed, whatever. Yeah, right. We got to show what shit has these Arabs are. And it's like, oh, come on, really? I mean, you know, whatever you think, whatever you believe in life, it's, just, it's a painful friggin' movie to watch. And it's so obviously horribly jingoistic. I mean, it puts something entertaining like Invasion USA on a pedestal. It's just like so much worse. <laughs> it's hard to watch. It's turgid. I really despise the Delta Force films. Um, even though they have a fantastic well, the, cast. The other so. ones are horrible, but the first, the first one's the better of the three or four. Yeah, no, that's true. Definitely the first one's better than the others. Uh, so now crimes the disease and on the cure. Uh, Stallone does one of his, what was originally considered one of his worst films to that point, but he's done so much worse since, uh, <laughs> which is Cobra. Uh, basically, he is this guy, Cobra Cobretti. Uh, he's got to protect the only surviving witness to this weird cult of bikers uh, run by Brian Thompson, who is in, like, again, a lot of things like the Nico Mastarakis films and such. We talk about him as well. Apparently, he was Nico's son in law for a while. Uh, and a lot of these kickboxing action films, you know, kind of odd looking fellow, but, you know, was big and brutal. And he, these guys go around on motorcycles and they clink axes together. <laughs> It's part of their cult. Uh, and, of course, Stallone's got a nice car, and he goes around and he's got to you know, take these guys out. 
And this is the film that introduced Bridget Nielsen to the world, so another reason for it to apologize. But it's funny. I mean, it's bad funny. Like, if you like this era of action films, which I do, uh, this is definitely a good example of it. There's more entertaining ones, but for a Stallone film, it's definitely up there. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that. They did a couple yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, he, he looks... He looks great, and 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 yeah, he's all black leather and stuff for the whole thing. So it's like, you know, but go ahead. Well, yeah, he, but this was at a period too where he was also, he, he, he you know, he's back to that again where he's speaking very clearly. But this is at the period where he was also speaking clearly before he entered Mumbleese, and uh, <laughs> no, he was he was he he. he, he Kind of drifted into something for a while. So you see how he's posturing; it looks great. Uh, the movie's nonsensical. It's very oh, that whole kind of. This is akin to that whole somebody in Hollywood's vision of what bad crime criminals look like. Sort of like the whole yep. Warriors thing, which is, we you know I come from Coney Island. We laughed that shit off <laughs> because if we saw people like that, we would. Kick their ass. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. those baseball yeah, guys. They're just like kiss. <laughs> yeah, but even the Warriors themselves, come on, nobody walks around like that. It's like you better run. Like you come out of a gay nightclub or something. Yeah, they were like a gay biker gang. That's what the joke about that. The Warriors is great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Seriously, it's nuts, but it's a fun film. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, what was Walter Hill thinking? Uh, anyway, so obviously some, somebody never journeyed on the train. But anyway, <laughs> all that being. It is. Uh, this is akin to that, you know. It's like somebody's vision of what kind of crazy. You know, you mentioned the axe clicking together. Yeah, <laughs> it's a strange I mean, movie. Cut people's heads off. I mean, come on, how ridiculous is this? Yeah, and he and he met Bridget Nielsen on this, I think, and uh, they did they marry? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, they did, because uh, what happened was she went after uh, Schwarzenegger at one point, and he basically pushed her off on Stallone, and then they got involved and married. So I was like, okay. Um, and, of course, that didn't I saw her long. once in a Red Lobster. <laughs> wow. This is a start to your career, or like end to hers, I should say. Uh, <laughs> she was with that guy who wears big jewelry. What, what was his name? Someone wears big jewelry? I have no idea. Rappers? <laughs> a little short black rapper who wears his Big, big jewelry around his neck. She, she was dating short too. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, they have this reality show on MTV. <laughs> oh. Wow. Uh, yeah. But I mean, yeah, you, you're right about this kind of stuff. That's that's what I'm talking with this neocon paranoia. It's people that never leave yeah. their fucking house and have no idea how the world really runs, and they think that the streets are really scary like this. Uh, anybody who listens to Ed I Level, we used to play a lot from this fellow that we knew. He was a fellow weightlifter at the time, but he's kind of like the sidekick. I uh, won't get too much into him, but he was basically uh, really juvenile in his mind. He was really into 80s TV shows and didn't really get out much in that respect. Uh, so he kind of did these raps that were sort of like Vanilla Ice, but it had too much of his 80s action film stuff playing into it. So he did this one about called Being on the Streets, about this like street gang chasing him, and you know I could have been killed or bruised really bad, and you know, how he barely makes it through, and like God puts woods in the way to get him home, and like, he's taking a rub-a-dub-dub in the tub with his wife. Really, this is seriously, this is actually the lyrics. 
hilarious shit. That's the kind of mentality that made these films. This is what they think the real world's life. It's big and scary, and everybody's a drug dealer, and everybody's a murderer, and you're better off staying home because it's nice and safe here, and the cops will protect you. Get the fuck out of here. And that's what makes these films so funny. Um, so speaking of which, you get Avenging Force, which is not an American ninja film, but does star Dudikoff and James. Uh, he's basically, he's a former military man, uh, a senator friend of his getting death threats from a group of neo-Nazis who basically are playing the most dangerous game. They catch a bunch of people and do this out in the swamp uh, in Cajun country. Uh, it's almost as ridiculous as Invasion USA. I think it might have been intended to be like an Invasion USA Part 2, but they didn't get Chuck Norris for this one. Loads of fun. Definitely recommended. Um, Firewalker, which is another Chuck Norris one with Jay Lee Thompson. Uh, it's interesting because it's Taken on those the same thing as this King Solomon's Mines films, uh, yeah, but with yeah. but with Lou Gossett Jr. and Melody Anderson this time. Uh, Melody Anderson, who was in Flash Gordon of all things, uh, um, yeah, yep. Uh, Sonny Landham's in this, you know, famous biker, uh, whatever the hell, a bit player. Um, Oh, yeah, that's another thing. Uh, John Reese Davies once again slumming, but it's more fun. I like this one a lot more than the King Solomon's Mind. This uh, pair of movies, the Quarterman movies, uh, Assassination, which is a late Charlie Bronson film with Jill Ireland and Michael Ansara. Basically, Jill this time is uh, like a Hillary Clinton. She's a bitchy, nasty first lady, uh, and he's a Secret Service guy that's assigned to go cross-country with him to keep her from getting assassinated, and you keep hoping that he'd fail. <laughs> uh, then you've got, what else, The Barbarians, which is a Diodato film. I don't know how the hell they got their hands on this. Peter Paul and David Paul, there were two big you know, Dumbo body bows of the era. Richard Lynch is in it. <laughs> Michael Berman's in it. Um, American Ninja 2, like we were talking about, there's a couple of them. This one now, they're in the Caribbean, and this is where it starts getting really ridiculous. A bunch of Marines disappear, right? So they find out that there's this guy who's like, you know, kidnapping Marines and making super ninja warriors. And, you know, uh, Dudikoff and Steve James and Mike Stone, believe it or not, uh, Elvis's karate instructor who was also involved with a lot of stuff back in the 70s. Um, they basically have color-coded ninjas. It's really – it's the first of those kind of street fighter sort of a things where everybody's out on an island somewhere. There's some lunatic trying to take over the world, and they've got this army of killer, you know, whatever the hell it is. In this case, is ninjas. Really ridiculous. Loads of fun. Uh, and the last of the good American ninja films. Uh, Superman for the Quest for Peace was here in canon. You know, Christopher Reeve got a bug up his ass to direct his own film or write it. Uh, and it's some ridiculous anti-nuclear power polemic. Uh, he got Gene Hackman involved, at least as the voice. Uh, but, you know, Jackie Cooper's in it, you know, uh, Uncle Fester. Um, John Cryer is in it, who was like a big in these um, 80s teen sex comedies. Mario Hemingway, Margot Kidder shows up. But it's like really bogged down by not only the horrible script and bad acting, but this fellow Mark Pillow, who's the nuclear man, it's just you know shoddy special effects. It's a mess. Uh, even for like the Superman well, films. Well, the, 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 other, the other thing too is you know one and two are, are you know what can you say? You know, well, we might tackle that one day. We do our, our superhero films because we just recently last week there was superhero TV shows, right? Uh, TV shows, right? Uh, but uh, but those first two Superman films by Richard Lester of all people are really good. Those first two Superman movies, and the third one's a complete misfire. Yes. 
Not as bad as yeah. four. Not as bad as four. And the thing is, I I read something recently that can't you know Christopher Reeve really wanted. You know, they made the first two together for like a hundred million dollars, which in nineteen seventies money, a lot of money. And I'm not sure how much they spent the, the, on the third one, but on the fourth one, they gave him seventeen million dollars worth of nothing. <laughs> and that's we're already talking about almost nineteen ninety, folks. Yeah. And uh, seventeen million dollars. Of course, the effects are going to be shoddy, and. I think there are like several versions of this out there, and none of them. Are good, but, um, and here's, here's the period where canon starts to fall apart because they're doing the split between these ever fading, less quality, jingoistic films and these ridiculous children's films. Like another one they do, Masters of the Universe, with Dolph Lundgren of all people and Frank Langella, who was Dracula in '79 as Skeletor, uh, Meg Foster. They, the mask the whole time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, this blue-eyed girl that was in stuff like, you know, The Wind for Nico Mastarakis, she's like evil Lynn. Billy Barty's in the damn thing, the famous midget, who was in all kinds of stuff from going back to, like, Harry oh, Scarum with Elvis. That was Meg somebody, Meg Foster, yeah. Uh, and Billy Barty's in it as basically, like, the shit monster from Weird Science, but instead, I don't know, he's supposed to be some, like, weird troll or something that's making up for, you know, I guess they couldn't animate Orko. Horrible, horrible thing. And Courtney Cox is in it before she got famous. I guess this was after the Springsteen video. It, I mean, it's, it's funny bad, but it's definitely bad. Uh, they did one of the penitentiary films, you know, those Jamal Famaka things with Lee Isaac Kennedy, you know, being behind bars. Um, Anthony Geary's in the damn thing, you know, who's a soap opera star. Uh, you got another Death Wish film, which was really kind of turgid. This was the serious one of all of them. Uh, where he basically goes and tries to stop the flow of drugs, you know, coming into town. Kay Lenz is in it. Well, I usually like, but this film is just bad. Uh, Missing in Action 3, which is, I don't want to say the worst. One. I thought 2 might have been the worst. But this one, you know, Chuck's going in and he discovers that he, oh, his Asian war bride is still alive and he's got a son. So he's going in and trying to help them out. And immediately he gets them killed. I'm like, wow, that's great. Good job. Uh, it, it's horrible. Um there's a film called Gore, which I never really saw. It's like, I think it's an Italian one because um, there's people like Arbano Barbieri in it and uh, Oliver Reed. Yeah, I saw that. Jack Palance. Reed, uh, yeah. yeah, but I never saw this one, so I can't say. Um, Albert Pion did Alien from L.A. for them, which was a horrible thing with Kathy Island. And Deep Roy, the famous Indian midget who was in stuff like Time Bandits. Uh, Bloodsport for Van Damme. They started doing a couple of Van Damme films. Actually, the last thing they produced was a Van Damme film, which was Death Warrant. Um, Hero and the Terror, which is one of the last Chuck Norris films. He basically attempted to make Silent Rage in an even cheesier fashion. It was pretty bad. Messenger of Death, which was uh, one of the last Bronson films. It's not that bad. Uh, basically, he's a Mormon this time, and his family gets killed in his house. Uh, so... You know, he basically ends up killing all these people at the end. Trish Vanderbeer's in it. John Ireland's in it. Uh, and they also did Cyborg, which is that rega- well-regarded Van Damme. We're kind of sci-fi martial arts hybrid. Yep, Kickboxer. American Ninja 3 and 4. 3 was bad. It didn't have Dudikoff in it. They had some other guy, David Bradley, who was pretty bad, and Steve James. Four was actually better than that, believe it or not, because they brought Dudikoff back in a bit part. Uh, and once again, uh, he goes up basically to save this other guy, Bradley, when he gets captured by those color-coded ninjas from two. 
<laughs> but you know, Mike uh, Steve James isn't in it, so it fails in that respect. You got like uh, Dirty Dancing knockoff Lombada. There's another Delta Force. Actually, two Delta Force films are terrible. Uh, there's something called American Samurai, which had that same guy David Bradley in it, and Mark Dacascos. Pretty bad. Um, Basically, it's just the same idea as you expect from these other ones. You know, he's got like a half brother that he's fighting with, who's a drug dealer, uh, and they fight in this like Turkish arena thing. So once again, you're going back to the island basically to fight to your death. It's kind of like what the Van Damme films were becoming at the time, kickboxing and all this stuff, which was also, like you said, cyborg kickboxing. These are all uh, canon films towards the end. Um, River of Death, which is a really bad Dudikoff film, uh, again trying to do the Indiana Jones thing, but with Nazis. And uh, Donald Pleasance is in the damn thing, and Herbert Lom, and L.Q. Jones from The Witchmaker, and your pal Robert Vaughn again, the football head, does not work horrible. <laughs> uh, and then we get what is my all-time favorite Charlie Bronson film, Kinshite, Forbidden Subjects. I know what this thing's for. It's for jacking off. It's basically this Japanese train pervert. You know, like they have this thing that they used to do over in Japan where guys would get on a train because they're all squashed together. They were kind of like, you know, molest you know, women that were standing by them. And they couldn't really say anything because, you know, Japan had this culture of shame. So they got away with this stuff, right? So this guy's basically a pervert. Comes over to the U.S. for business and his daughter's so naive because he raises her kind of strict. She winds up getting picked up by this guy. Like, okay, can you show me where this place is when she's coming home from school? And she becomes a prostitute. So it all comes around because being a guy that fills girls up on trains when you're a businessman is equal to like having your daughter raped by a bunch of perverted, uh, you know, whatever you call them, pimps. Yeah, okay. Uh, and of course, Bronson is totally over the top and insane. He's old and fat and really falling apart. But damn it, he can. <laughs> this is the sleaziest, the sleaziest action film you will ever see. I love it to death. So, anything you want to say about any of those? Because we obviously went pretty far over trying to get this in. No, no, we're good. We're good. Yeah. So, All right. So that was a freaking epic. Uh, not intentional. Uh, so next week, we're talking uh, Flying Fists and Shining Swords. We're going to be speaking of Shaw Brothers. Formed way back in the days of silent film, two of the four Shaw Brothers, Run, Run, and Run, made to be precise, turned an unspectacular business concern into the greatest of all action film, Asian action film companies. Rival only much later to a far lesser degree by Raymond Chow's Golden Harvest, Shaw Productions were known for their revolving cast, stunning sets, and costumery, and over-the-top mixtures of myth, fantasy, and horror with some fairly grounded martial arts technique with both barehanded and exotic weapons fighting coming into play. Wait, wait, court wait, records, did you say customary? Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, from, from core directors like horror experts Ho meng Chi Wang Kei, and gothic-leaning short play of Chor Yuan, we'll proceed to the true masters of the genre, graceful fight coordinator come director Lao Kar Lung, and the incomparable father of heroic bloodshed Chang Che. So join us as we talk everything from Wang Yu and David Chang to T Lung and the Venoms, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine next week. So, anything else you want to say before we give them a long awaited farewell? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, just tune in for next week's show. Uh, We hope to not spend too much time on the costumery, but uh, it'll be epic, I'm sure. (laughs) <laughs> well, hopefully it won't be anywhere near as long as this one. Uh, my apologies to my co-host. Uh, so uh, we will see you next week. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our endless uh, drawing room cast on Camp Films. Next week we talk to Shaw about If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician, you can contact us uh, 
facebook.com forward slash beardseeds1 or our website beardseeds1.wordpress.com Beardseeds is a brought to you by the Big Papa Online Network on the say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.